Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Dedham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. And we're so uh, thrilled to have Jennifer, one of our co-leaders, and we want to have Jennifer set our compass heading for today. Jennifer, would you please, would you please kind of guide us on what we need to focus on today? Hi, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Denham. Um, it is very disturbing what's been happening with this variant and all of the misinformation and folks not getting vaccinated. I'm really looking forward to today's webinar to try to open doors to help people understand through your great uh, speakers and explanations as to what's really going on out there and how we all have to work together as, as a unified country to, to get those vaccines and do whatever we can to stop this from spreading before new variants come about. So again, I just wanna thank you so much for these webinars and all of the vital life-saving information that you're giving us. Um, and looking forward to today's program. Thank you, and I'll give it back to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jennifer. And we'll ask you to be a reactor as we finish up. And, and for those of you that have joined us for the first time, this is our usual disclosure statement. No one has anything to disclose. No funding of this program has come from the healthcare industry, product, service, or technology, either direct, indirect, or in an affiliated way. And none of our speakers or reactors have anything to disclose. We take the conflict of interest very seriously. We've got a wonderful set of speakers and panelists today. We have three emergency medicine physicians at great organizations. We have a nurse preventionist. We have security and, and disaster preparedness leaders. We have award-winning educators, pediatricians, EMTs, a number of our young people that have really taken up the charge. Uh, uh, we, have, uh, we have those that are in film school. We have EMTs. We have those that are pre-med students. We have those that are in industry come, that will go back to graduate school, perhaps law and other, uh, other areas. So we've got a great group uh, to have speak to you today. Uh, because uh, Delta is such a critical issue, many are on duty in ICUs. Dr. Boats uh, is at, at IC, the ICU today. And we want to thank them now formally for recording and pre-recording segments while they're fighting the battle at the front line on their shifts today. So we have live and recorded sessions uh, with them. I'm often asked, and I'm a retired, for those of you that don't know me, I'm a retired radiation oncologist and I taught biomedical engineering and innovation uh, for about, uh, over the last 37 years, uh, started a nonprofit uh, uh, medical research organization, which is TMIT, that's hosting this, and a for-profit private incubator. And people ask me, well, well, Dr. Denham, where do you go for your information? As soon as I finish this broadcast, I will be listening to Dr. Osterholm, uh, a world-class medical detective detective, leading epidemiologist, um, and he, like us, thought we would we were he heading into a really great time when we would have less problems with COVID. We were about ready to discontinue our monthly uh, uh, coronavirus community of practice. Uh, and what has happened is because Delta hit, uh, Dr. Osterholm has continued and, and restarted his, his weekly webinars, and I highly recommend them. It's one of the great go-to places. So what are the FAQs? Today, uh, we're going to go through a number of FAQs. Uh, do I send my kids to school? What about play dates? What about carpooling? Uh, what do I get the, the vaccine if I've already been infected with the virus? But the bigger issues and the really simple issues are, can I catch it? Can I spread it? 
can I get sick and can I get long haul disease? And those are for the unvaccinated and the vaccinated, as well as what about our adolescents, our 12 to 17 year olds that are entitled now to be able to have the vaccine and then children two through 12. And the, the answers are yes, 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 and yes. The issue is that, but for those that are unvaccinated, extremely high risk, extremely high risk to spread it, uh, very high risk to get sick. And most people don't realize that although the vaccines uh, are communicated to be 90% effective, they're 90% effective at preventing severe disease, putting you in the hospital, in the ICU or death. Um, the vaccines actually protect an enormous, uh, to enormous degree. We know that the vaccines can, uh, can increase, uh, can decrease your risk for symptoms by eightfold, decrease your risk for hospitalization 25-fold, and, and, and uh, reduce your risk for death by 25-fold. Uh, so all of these things are critical, and we'll be talking about a number of FAQs as we go through our program. Any of you heard about the leaked uh, presentation at the CDC reported by uh, Washington Post. We'll post the entire slide deck uh, on the website. But what prompted a lot of the most recent things that the CDC is doing, and I want to just state we're apolitical. I've, wor I've worked with very closely with two Democrat administrations, two Republican administrations, and those of us in healthcare know we all have to work together. So this will be an apolitical presentation, just purely on, on the science. Uh, I, I will say, though, that the CDC, CDC is doing a terrific job with a very, very difficult problem. So uh, this, these were the slides. This uh, image is what I just described in terms of some answers to those FAQs, which we'll dig into deeper uh, from that slide deck. Uh, and then I, I think this is a very powerful slide. SARS-CoV-2 is with the Delta variant is very lethal, very contagious, you're gonna hear that over and over again today. And you can see compared to chickenpox and compared to uh, so many of the other conditions that are on this spreadsheet, uh, you'll, you'll see that it is much more uh, transmissible than Ebola, bird flu, Spanish flu, polio, smallpox, SARS and MERS. Um, it's more deadly than the original strain. Uh, and uh, we really know that we've really got a tiger by the tail here. Uh, a couple things, and those of you that are joining us for the first time, we always talk about, well, what's in the news? You'll see some, you'll see some articles uh, that, uh, uh, that have popped on the grid here in the last uh, few days. The Lambda COVID, COVID variant uh, uh, that we have to really be watching for. This is a Newsweek article. We've provided you the link. Um, the this title is maybe more scary than the article itself, but it talks about the doomsday COVID variant that may be worse than Delta. I think we've got a very, very uh, uh, serious uh, uh, issue. And Dr. Osterholm, as you can see, is quoted, uh, the next variant could be Delta on steroids. And this is to really help us understand that we've really got a whole different and new set of diseases. Uh, there's an article that ha had just came out uh, that uh, yesterday, Florida battles record COVID-19 hospitalizations and Delta variant surges. Uh, and I'm going to play uh, a video that is available to you uh, in this article. It's also available on YouTube. For those of you that are watching on uh, a, a, a delayed viewing um, on, on uh, Facebook, uh, sometimes we're prevented from showing someone else's video. So we recommend that you go to YouTube which you, where you can find uh, this video, the science behind why Delta variant is spreading 
COVID-19 faster. And then we have a doctor from Florida, if she's able to log on uh, today, uh, who will tell you a story about what's going on in Florida today. So I'll play this video now. This is a spike protein. It's what gives the coronavirus its unmistakable look. And scientists think it may be the key to why new variants of the virus are becoming more transmissible. We begin tonight with the alarming rise in infections fueled by the highly contagious Delta variant and the sobering words from Dr. Fauci warning today, things are going to get worse. The Delta variant was first detected in India last October, where it helped fuel a devastating COVID surge. It has since spread to more than 100 countries. The big concern is that with more transmissible variants, you have more cases and you have more chance for super spreading events and epidemic surges, which overwhelm our healthcare systems. Here's the science behind why these new variants are spreading faster and what this could mean for vaccines. Like other viruses, when the coronavirus replicates, small genetic mistakes or mutations can occur. You can be almost certain that as long as there's a lot of virus circulating in the community, there will be the evolution of mutants because that's what viruses do. Many of those do nothing. Some of those actually confer a survival benefit for the virus to transmit more effectively, for instance. Abrar Karan is a global health physician who has been studying the coronavirus pandemic. And so as it does that, it has a better chance of spreading to new hosts and continuing to replicate in those hosts. Karan says this is likely what is happening with the new, more transmissible variants appearing around the world. Recent research has shown that a number of these new versions of the virus have mutations that affect the spike protein. Take a look at this model of the coronavirus. You can see each spike protein is made up of three identical parts known as protomers. These protomers have the ability to change their position from closed to open, affecting how easily they can bind to and infect human cells. You can visualize it like a flower. So you've got petals on the outside, the really obvious thing that you see, there are three of them. The three of them have to bind to the receptors. Jeremy Lubin is a virologist who studies the coronavirus. He explains that when the protomers are down, infection is more difficult. But when these parts are up and open, it's much easier. In the first version of the coronavirus that originated in China in 2019, these protomers usually had a closed shape, which may have made it less transmissible than some more recent versions of the virus. This is another view of the spike protein that helps to show where these mutations occur. In the winter of 2020, one mutation known as D614G emerged. It appears in this region of the spike protein and has been present in various variants since, including Delta. This mutation made it more likely for the spike to have an open shape, increasing the virus's ability to infect human cells. Soon after the mutation emerged, variants that had it took over. So by June, pretty much all the viruses around the planet had this change, this mutation. Our belief is that it supplanted the original virus because it was more transmissible. Another element that affects the spike protein is antibodies. These are proteins that defend the body against the coronavirus by blocking the ability of the spike protein to attach to cells, which prevents the virus from infecting. Antibodies are produced by the immune system in response to infection or vaccines. The new coronavirus variants that scientists are worried about also have mutations that affect the spike protein. This includes the highly transmissible Delta variant, this variant has a number of mutations that scientists think could be affecting its ability to spread. 
One is called T478K. It's in a region of the spike protein that's involved in how the virus binds to receptors on respiratory cells. Another mutation that scientists are focusing on is called P681R. It's located near a part of the spike protein that helps the virus enter and infect cells. What the antibody recognizes is a shape. If you're playing with blocks and you have, a, you have triangles and, and uh, circles and you have to fit them into the appropriate holes, you can't fit a circle into a triangular hole. Um, it's analogous to that. If the virus then changes so that it's no longer a triangular hole, but it's a circular hole, then the, the antibody will no longer fit. Scientists have also found that some coronavirus variants have parts missing in a region that comes off the side of the spike protein. This is known as the N-terminal domain. Some of those mutations are removing surfaces of the protein that other antibodies bind to. If the virus mutates that surface or deletes it, those antibodies are no longer going to work to block the virus. Scientists say this may help explain why vaccines may become less effective against some new variants. This is why experts are urging caution. Variants are going to continue emerging, and we need a public health strategy that addresses it. Vaccines will be a major part of COVID control for the foreseeable future. Experts continue to emphasize the importance of getting vaccinated, along with other strategies to keep transmission low and stop the spread. So we are very, very blessed uh, to have uh, a wonderful physician that will join us today. Dr. Amira uh, Mansfield is a vice president and chief medical officer at Advent Health Apopka and Advent Health in Winter Garden, Florida. Uh, prior to this role, she served as the chief of staff at Advent Health Celebration. She's board certified in emergency medicine and has been a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Her bachelor's degree was from uh, Princeton University, and she completed her medical degree and master's in health administration at the University of Florida. Uh, we'd like to invite uh, Dr. Mansfield to share with us uh, a story that she shared with me uh, earlier uh, this week that was uh, very, very powerful. Uh, Dr. Mansfield, thank you for joining us today. And uh, I think you uh, would love to hear what's going on in Florida, to hear how serious things are, but then also the wonderful story you shared with me. Well, I appreciate the forum and the opportunity to talk with you today. Um, you know, Florida, as I'm sure if you just look on the news, is an area of substantial spread. Um, I work within Advent Health in the Central Florida Division, and um, we are seeing every day record numbers of patients. Um, I don't like that every day I open my computer and it's a new record that we've set in, in terms of number of admitted COVID patients, and certainly those that are requiring mechanical ventilation. Um, I will just share that in the last few days, I've been in healthcare now for, this is my 21st year, and um, as an ED doc um, who still practices. Uh, my last shift was just a few days ago and um, it's incredible to see the acuity of the patients. And then with this particular strain compared to others, how quickly patients are decompensating. Whereas before we seem to have been able to uh, temporize them on heated high flow um, for an extended period of time, the, they're, they're really decompensating quickly and they're young. Um, and so with that, we've really tried to figure out how to continue to encourage our teams to take their own uh, health seriously 
we've done everything we can to be in the public forum to continue to provide facts regarding vaccinations. And certainly there is a significant amount of disinformation, but I truly think that this is a time when anybody who is in any kind of healthcare role, uh, leader, formal or informal, to really take a stance and use the influence that you have. But we also have to recognize that that's not just within the community, it's within our own hospital walls. Across the country, I think we're all seeing um, persistently low rates of vaccination uh, adoption amongst our nursing teams, our dietary teams, our EVS teams, really anybody on the clinical um, and non-clinical space. So we've really taken that to heart and um, persisted in the conversations with our team members about vaccinations. We have a forum at my campus where twice a day we have what's called a daily safety huddle and there are leaders from every department on the campus. And we continue to report that we think our greatest safety opportunity within our campus is the need for vaccinations amongst our staff. That is a major safety concern. And uh, day after day, we've reported the numbers. 97% um, of our patients are unvaccinated. That's a staggering number. It's reported on the news and I'm here to tell you it's completely accurate. It is not hysteria. It is not inflating the data that is actual fact. So I have one particular nurse uh, who's a nurse leader on my progressive care unit. That's the step down to the intensive care unit. Um, and that unit has been one of the most challenging to try to get them to adopt vaccinations. And the reason that that is troubling is they carry a large proportion of our COVID patients. Those who need um, oxygen, um, patients who are not intubated but needing um, significant oxygen supplementation. And month after month, I've been rounding on them and talking to them and encouraging them. And, and I know them, right? They're family, we're a small campus. And I know this particular nurse, um, she's got kids, but she has a grandson who is like the light of her life. And every so often I just kind of go up to her and say, hey, have you thought about it some more? What questions do you have? Think about it, for, not just for you, but for your grandson. Um, she's someone I share pictures of my kids with pretty regularly too. And uh, let's see, the weekend before last was a really difficult weekend here. It was kind of the, the beginning of the really steep part of our curve that continues to go up. She was off on the Monday, but I'd heard she had a really rough weekend. I think of our 20 patients, something like 15 of them were on heated high flow COVID patients. So really sick. Again, those that quickly decompensate. So I rounded her on with her on Tuesday when she came back and just talked to her and, and checked in on her and heard about the weekend. And she said to me, I think I'm, I think I'm ready to get vaccinated. I'm, you know, I'm afraid to take something home. I'm afraid I might get my grandson sick. My parents are afraid to be around me. And, you know, whereas before the median age of our patients were like her parents' age, now the patients we're seeing are her age. And so it got really real. So I said, really? Um, try to mask my surprise behind my mask. And I uh, said, yeah, how, when are you gonna do that? She said, well, I think maybe next week I'll schedule an appointment and uh, my daughter too, she works in the hospital. So I know this nurse and I was really afraid she might change her mind. So I asked her, I said, just curious, if I could make it happen today, get you vaccinated here now, would you do it? And after the fact, I found out she told me she really was debating in her head whether or not to say yes, but she didn't wanna say no to me. And uh, she said, yeah, I would. Um, and so I said, well, let me make some phone calls and see what we can do. So the blessing was that everybody, I, I had to call like five people to get permission to make sure I wasn't stepping on anybody's toes and that we can use our allocation of, of vaccine. And it took about an hour and a half to put it together, but I um, managed to get her vaccinated. 
I think what we both didn't expect was that when that happened, um, I broke down crying. And uh, that definitely was not in the mood to cry that moment, but it surprised me and it surprised her. And she asked me, she said, why are you crying? And I told her, I'm like, I think it's the sense of relief from the fact that you finally said yes, because I worry about you. I worry about your grandson and you being there for him. Um, you know, you're like family. And not only that, but you're a leader on this unit and you carry influence. And I'm hoping that you doing this will inspire others. And I didn't realize how much she would take that to heart because what she did then was she knew there were a few other nurses who were kind of on the fence finally. And she reached out to them and that kind of created this wave and word got out. And actually what I, I love was the first two nurses who really didn't want to do it. She actually said, look, I'll hold your hand. And she did. She sat there and held their hand while they got vaccinated. Um, and we had 12 doses available at the campus that day. And we quick, quickly exceeded the number of people who actually wanted to get vaccinated and a wait list started. And ultimately what happened in the next 24 hours, we had 42 of our team members get vaccinated and two family members actually. So they said, can we bring my family? And I said, I don't care who you bring. I'm not gonna say no to anybody. You bring them, I'll vaccinate them. Um, so 44 people. So the following day I, I went and circled back and rounded on the nurse and, um, and just told her, I said, hey, you know what, 43. And she said, what's, what's that? And I said, because of you, 43 people got vaccinated in the last 24 hours. That's the power you have. Um, so I'm, I'm just really proud of her. And I think most importantly, I think what it's shared with us is if ever there were a time for people who have facts and who have any kind of platform to use their voice, now is the time uh, because things are scary. Um, I don't like feeling like we can't take care of everybody as if we would our family, but running out of space, that's a reality that we're facing. And I just, I hope to encourage you all to consider being vulnerable and sharing your story and explaining to people why this is important. And sometimes it may surprise you, but you might break down crying, but sometimes that can be really impactful. Dr. Mansfield, thank you so much for sharing this story. When you related it to me, I got choked up on the phone and I'm a cancer doctor and I, you know, have faced all kinds of terrible things and giving terrible news, but I don't think people know how much we love our teammates and how much they mean to us. And uh, you got college students that are on this call today that have stepped up and put themselves at risk to help other uh, young people as well. And it's kind of, it is kind of scary. I don't want to leave your note. I want to come back to you to have you react, but I want you to share how many people in healthcare you've lost at your own hospital from COVID to let them know how serious this is. 18, all unvaccinated. And we have not lost any, although we have cared for, um, We've cared for employees who have been sick with COVID, but those who have been vaccinated, no one has died. And that number could be one and it's just as important, um, but 18 is really troubling. At a hospital of 600 people. So that's, those are, we know the people that we lost. So thank you so much. Uh, I'm gonna come back to you uh, uh, as a reactor and we're so grateful that you shared uh, your story with us. Uh, that was wonderful. So uh, what we're going to do is um, uh, 
move on to just give you a little bit of background uh, on uh, our program. Uh, the MedTech program actually, and, and Chief Bill Adcox, our program would not be what it is today without Dr. Greg Boats, who's now in ICU at super high volume right now, very just struggling. And you know, their, their teams are doing everything they can to take care of people in Houston. Chief Adcox is on with us live uh, and uh, Dr. Boats is on with us by recording. But we started in 2015 focusing on bystander rescue care. And it's kind of fun to have three emergency medicine doctors contributing today. Uh, and we focused on what is the Good Samaritan care? What could we do before EMS arrives? And you see the eight target areas we focused on, and infection was one of them. Uh, we've had the uh, privilege to be able to publish multiple articles for Campus Safety Magazine, which you may download off of our website. Uh, one that really pertains to this whole COVID issue is family safety plans, and we have a commitment for four more articles with Campus Safety. Not only medical articles are we doing in R&D uh, of a thousand family responses that we've done with major medical centers, but actually we know we need to get out regular magazine articles as well. Just to give those of you that haven't been with us before, uh, TMIT is 37 years old. Um, I had the honor of helping the LeapFrog group focus on uh, with major employers, Boeing, GE, and many others uh, on uh, tying patient safety and quality to care. And, and then we were able to couple that to safe practices with public-private partnerships, and then with major, uh, major agencies in, in healthcare. And over that period of time, we've developed 3,100 hospitals and 3,000 communities. We're to have people like Dr. Mansfield and the other physicians that are on with us today. We have 500 subject matter experts. All of them work committing their time to help uh, with these free webinars and free programs that we do. That brings us to March last year. So March last year, when everything struck, uh, we thought, what can a small nonprofit do that maybe uh, could be the niche where we could focus? And we realized that nobody was really focusing on those that those together as a group that are keeping the power, the light, the water, the food, the information flowing to our homes who have to work no matter what. Homeland Security declared 16 industry sectors. You see them uh, before you. So we decided to start a community of practice, a learning community that would all work together to try to bring solutions. And solutions to who? We knew that each of these sectors have their own people that are working at work. We focused on their families. It was my hypothesis that, uh, that in the infections, we were gonna get infected at home more than we would at work. We've got all kinds of protective mechanisms at work, but having worked with so many infectious diseases and, and being involved in, in national guideline development for hospital-acquired infections, we, we knew that there, there's, it depends on time and exposure. Uh, then in August, uh, teachers, all educators were added to that. So you can go to our website, medtacglobal.org, and you may watch short videos that are four or five minute videos just addressing masks and, and hand washing and a number of the issues. And then uh, also uh, our, our Survive and Thrive programs. We've now, this is our 33rd 90 minute program that we've produced since March of last year. And I wanna thank Kyle Kemp, who's running this webinar behind the scenes without Kyle and uh, our staff, uh, Evelyn and a number that work tirelessly and all of the people you
you here. We couldn't pull this off to offer this all to the community. Uh, you can see short videos, long videos, and then archived information. We started out with about 80 subject matter experts. You can see people that you might know like Dennis Quaid, but there are people that are even young people that are in lower school and mid middle school, many doctors, and we, we feel very blessed to work with. If you look at the top 20 US News and World Report medical centers, we work with almost all of them all the time. Uh, we're very blessed to have them contributors. That started with about 80, and now it's 130 subject matter experts. In addition to them, and you'll see on the second row there, Sully Sullenberger, Dr. Don Berwick, and others that were in our two Discovery Channel broadcast films. Uh, TMIT also produces global broadcast films in association with WHO and other organizations globally. And we were able to pull clips from what they said, like my partner at Harvard, uh, uh, Professor Clayton Christensen, who worked with us closely before we lost him this last year. So you see just a, a broad range of clinicians, finance people, business people that have all been contributors. So we undertook a study uh, and our goal was a thousand family responses with a family defined as a living unit, not necessarily a, a blood relative family, but it might be a group of college students that work together could be considered as a living unit. Um, eventually you'll see all of these organizations were contributors and participants. Many of their staff participated in their families and it was our family study of those staff. What happened was we hit a nerve somehow and the general public and many of you are general public now watching. So we try to bridge the gap of being able to be less technical uh, but, uh, and, and, and thread the needle in what we, uh, what we address. But the, the issues were to measure, um, respond, measure readiness, response if somebody gets sick, rescue if somebody gets sick, recovery if somebody in your family gets sick, and then resilience, what can we learn? And that that would be a cycle. And you see the organizations before you that worked with us. Uh, when people say, say well, well, Dr. Denham, just kind of dumb it down for me. Tell me, what, what are you doing? What's different than you got what you're doing? Look, the CDC, the NIH, the WHO, they're doing a, a tremendous amount of work. Science is changing so fast, we can hardly keep up with archiving it. They're doing a terrific job telling us the what we need to do. That's the what. But our families need to know the how. So we thought, well, where could we serve? And the issue was, um, we try not perfectly, but we're doing our best to give you and your families the how. Doctors learn, and the wonderful doctors that are on today, they learn all kinds of things about universal precautions and what to do at work, but their families, when they come home dead tired, uh, it's very hard to be a prophet in your own country and to, and to be the COVID cop. I know it's hard for me and with my own family. So our goal is, try, try, is to try with these, this community of practice to turn the science into safety. Can, how can we do that? And it, it, we're really focused on the fact that family transmission chains were, were our hypothesis. We thought, well, this is where the infections probably are gonna happen, or maybe we can contribute there. And it turned out that the data now shows that that's true, that you can get it at work. But it turns out that secondary infections, infections that we get in our families uh, happen uh, because of what's happening in the community, not necessarily what's going on at work. And now the data shows that if somebody in your household, whether you're with roommates or with a family gets sick, 
over 50% of the people are going to get sick. 75% will be symptomatic within two to three days. And, uh, and now with Delta, it's a whole new ballgame. This is our Achilles heel. So our study, and I, I'm told, I don't know, and I don't want to claim it, but uh, that our study of a, a thousand family responses is the world's largest study of families. Many people are doing great research in COVID on devices and drugs and vaccines. In our world, we're studying families and what families can do to break the family transmission chains. And so that's really uh, uh, the, uh, the critical area that we're focused on today. We believe if you save the families, you can save the worker. If you save the worker, you can save our nation, our communities. And so we're also working with terrific companies who we've worked with in innovation over many years uh, who are really focused on uh, understanding how they can uh, turn this into something positive. I won't review the list of what we've been doing over the last 15 months. You can watch a video that gives our, our Q2 uh, executive summary, but you can see some of the highlights of the work we've been doing over the last 15 months. We thought that this was gonna be over and now we We've recommitted and doubled down that we will continue with these webinars. We've done, this is our 33rd 90-minute webinar. We've done 12 uh, courses. Uh, we have R&D going in multiple areas, and we're thrilled to have a number of students now working with us in hesitancy. Uh, and um, uh, so that has been just a great blessing. Our Survive and Thrive Roadmap, we won't go over it in detail, but we're going to ask the questions of our experts that pertain to these 12 areas, which are, how do you come home safe? Uh, um, uh, how do you uh, keep your kids safe? What do I do in the community? How do I put a family plan together? What do I do if somebody needs rescue and I've got to go to the emergency department? Practical stuff like how do you get there keeping safe? How do you get somebody home when Lyft and Uber won't pick up somebody who's sick? Most people don't know that. What do you do when you can't go to the hospital and you've got a family member in the ICU? We've done 90 minute programs on all of these, including long haul disease. And we've had very courageous physicians who, who have actually come on and said, I have long haul disease. I'm a leader of emergency preparedness. And yet I'm in the middle of a meeting and I'll forget what I'm, what I'm doing. And this is the brain fog. So this is up close and personal and real. And uh, uh, so we won't be covering everything, but we want to let you know that the new normal is really good. We're really going to have to focus on prevention, preparedness, protection, and performance improvement. And Bill Adcox, I'm going to ask him as a reactor to just uh, reiterate the importance of this and explain something called left of boom to you. We've organized all of these survive and thrive guides uh, 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 around that concept. Uh, and then when we realized that vaccine hesitancy was a, was a, was a very difficult problem, um, we started something called the Take the Shot, Save a Life program. And we're really blessed to have a number of our college students and young adults that are involved in that program uh, with us. The focus is to have the vaccination conversation with those that are in the movable middle, not the people that are angry about vaccines or, or just don't want to listen. We don't want to poke them in the eye. They have their right to feel whatever they wish. But those that are on the fence that really want to know, well, what, what are the key issues? And is it safe? And, and what about infertility and all these other things that are important. This is the, uh, a list of not all of our college students and young adults, but you can see that they represent wonderful organizations. Today we have on live uh, um, students from NYU and alum from Berkeley. Uh, we've got students from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, uh, from a number of the, the colleges on the, on the West Coast, and many, and, and many out in the community, and, and they're not 
prestigious colleges, but we all of our college students and all of our young adults have been focused on this. This is just a list of the organizations they hail from, and we're really, really blessed to have them reaching out as students to be able to have a peer-to-peer -peer contact. So let us know if you'd like to know more about it. We focus, as we are on this program, on what do we want you to know? What do we want you to feel? Because your emotion is what will drive you. The story from Dr. Mansfield, I felt what she said when she uh, was started to cry. I, I, I felt that feeling of having loved ones that I know and people I work with that are not uh, vaccinated. What do we want you to do? And what do you want me to say? So our focus uh, now is, uh, is, is going to be on, let's talk about Delta in more of a detailed fashion. Uh, I had a great, the great privilege of uh, knowing uh, Dr. Chris Fox uh, for a number of years. He's, he's the chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine here in Orange County, where I live at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, he's a waterman, accomplished surfer, sailor. Uh, he's one of our global leaders in how to use ultrasound in the emergency department. I think he's a terrific speaker, and I recorded him because he's on shift today, as many of our folks are. So what I'm going to do now is, uh, is have Chris give you a presentation. His slides are in the slide deck that we provide for you. And one of the comments that we got was, will you provide the link to the Wall Street Journal video you saw? Absolutely. We'll post it on the web, but you can also find it on YouTube. YouTube. So I'm now going to play uh, uh, Dr. Fox's presentation. The first question, Chris, is I've had COVID. Why should I get vaccinated? Oh, yeah. I have a lot of family members ask me that, that very question because you think a natural immunity should protect you from uh, from actually, the I've got two sections. I'm going to actually have uh, Chris uh, speak to us uh, at the end if we have time, and we'll probably extend our typical 90 minutes to two hours. He's going to answer a lot of the really key and, and important questions, but let's hear his full presentation first. Chris, many thanks for sharing uh, your valuable stories and insights of the latest data regarding the Delta virus. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is, this is great. Um, yeah, I'd like to go ahead and uh, share my screen and uh, tell you about what's going on. Yeah, so I was, uh, last week I was uh, doing my, uh, my volunteer physician work out on this little island that you can see here. It's in the Bahamas, it's a tiny island. It's only two miles long, about a half mile wide. And I worked there every summer for a week. And when I, and it's usually, you know, pretty low key and I take care of fish hooks and um, lacerations and marine envenomations and things like that. But when I arrived last Tuesday, um, I got the sign up from the previous doctor told me two people on the island had COVID and they were sheltering in place. And uh, unfortunately I got a call around midnight from the, uh, from the house of one of the people that he stopped breathing. And uh, unfortunately, he had uh, passed away from COVID, a 49-year-old guy. Now, this guy was, he was, uh, everybody on the island loved him. They knew him, been there for years and um, kind of, uh, you know, the, uh, the life of the island, so to speak. And so it was very sad. I, I was up all night um, uh, and about uh, 4.30 a.m. by the time I wrapped everything up with the uh, Ministry of Health and everything, um, he, he was on a, uh, on the boat to, uh, to go, you know, in the body bag back to, um, Bimini, which is over here. And I just sort of sat there on the dock watching this, 
float off into the distance. And I just, just kind of made me realize like the pandemic is uh, very much alive and real and far from over. And, you know, I, Hey, I've been vaccinated since December and I've, you know, we watched all the numbers go down and it just mentally felt great to finally fly again and feel like we're getting out of this thing, but uh, to watch uh, to, you know, to, to, you know, this is still happening everywhere, you know, all over the world. Um, and so, you know, we've been having a tough time convincing people to get vaccinated on the island. Again, there's about 100 people that live there, Bahamians. And um, that was a Tuesday. So Thursday, I got a shipment of vaccine. And then Friday, I, I got the island from about 60% vaccinated up to 86% vaccinated. And I think, um, I think the passing of that gentleman, unfortunately, uh, as, as, as unfortunate it was, really did help to get the, the herd immunity going better on that island. So anyways, it's just kind of a, a reminder that this is um, far from over and that the, and also the importance of the vaccine. I should, I should say that he was unvaccinated. I forgot to mention that. So, um, so anyways, um, I, I think I'll go ahead and sort of uh, go into the rest of the presentation. You know, this was um, Lollapalooza a couple of weeks ago, or last week, a few days ago, July 29th through August 1st. And it was out in Grand Park in Chicago. And you could see just the mass amount of people that were all crammed together, unvaccinated. And um, just thinking about the Delta variant and how it's spread so much easier, um, you know, the, uh, the, the transmissibility of the Delta variant is a lot closer to something like chickenpox than it is to something um, like the flu. So it's much, much more spread airborne, much easier and much more infectious. And so this is uh, obviously something that uh, is concerning when you see a picture like this. This was on the train on the way to, uh, I saw this video on Instagram, somebody posted, it's, it's actually on the L in Chicago on the way to Lollapalooza. You could see just all these people crammed, just packed in like sardines. Nobody's wearing masks and it's just uh, super concerning. And we just know that this, this whole thing is about to explode again. Um, and so to kind of bring it, you know, from the United States to Orange County, and even where I work at UCI, uh, you can see that uh, in terms of vaccination, United States were about 60% fully vaccinated, Orange County a little better, 66%. Uh, UCI Health overall, all 10,000 employees, about 81%. But when it boils down to the nurses and the doctors were really vaccinated. In fact, the residents, the youngest doctors of all, these are the trainees, they just get out of medical school. And now they're doing their training, we have about uh, 600 residents at UCI Health, 94% uh, vaccinated. So um, this is obviously uh, you know, uh, a testament to people that know the risks and work with it every day are you know, doing their best to keep themselves uh, vaccinated. And there's really no reason uh, not to get vaccinated. We have just a very strong vaccine supply. This is not the case around the world, but it is certainly the case in the United States and certainly is still the case in Orange County. And so uh, certainly when the winter's coming up, we need to think about um, our own settings and, and how high risk things are about to uh, become. These next few months are critical. And hopefully uh, Orange County follows suit with uh, that little island I was on the Bahamas and gets up to over 80% uh, vaccinated. Because if you look at the Delta variant, and, and this data is from the CDC, uh, or sorry, this data is from the California Department of Public Health, and you know, initially this epsilon variant was, was going and then it mutated. And then we saw this alpha variant 
And that's kind of going away now. And we're in a mutated again. Now we're seeing this Delta variant really become the dominant uh, variant here in, um, in California. And so if you're not vaccinated, then you're going to be at more risk, obviously, um, not just to, to, get the, to get COVID, but to, to be hospitalized and certainly uh, for death. And so if you look at the risk ratios, this is the, um, uh, the risk ba based on age. And so the reference group here was this 18 to 29-year-old group. And then as you get older, 30 to 39, 40 to 49, 50 to 64, et cetera, et cetera, you could see your risk for hospitalization is twofold if you're not vaccinated. As you go up and in your 50s, it's risk of hospitalization is uh, fourfold. And in 65 to 74 groups, sixfold. And then the, um, the risk of death is, is much, much higher. You could see 4X, 10X, 35X, even 95X if you're over 65. So this, uh, again, really hits the point home. The, the, the issue of vaccination, really important here. So you reduce your chance of hospitalization and especially a death. Uh, this data from the CDC. And then what about the long haul effects of COVID? You say, well, if I survive COVID, uh, most people do. Um, you know, what about what, what comes next? And this, this is another real good reasons why I like being vaccinated and why I'm getting my family, why I had my family vaccinated is that I just don't want these long haul symptoms big time. I mean, I have a hard enough time doing my job as it is. I can't imagine trying to function at work uh, as, as a father to my son, as a husband, if I had fatigue and headache and difficulty breathing and I wouldn't be able to enjoy you know, my favorite wines and my spicy food if I couldn't smell or taste it. Um, but no, I mean, really though, this is, uh, you know, to, th th this is a real thing. This is a study from the UK. This is, um, you know, fatigue. You had a, a 2.8 uh, chance uh, odds ratio of 2.8 times higher to have fatigue if you had COVID as opposed to if you didn't get COVID. So you had a 2.6 uh, odds ratio chance higher of having prolonged headache, uh, 2.4x uh, higher odds ratio of having difficulty breathing. Think about all the way that we communicate now on Zoom and trying to lead on Zoom all the time. Having a hoarse voice would be so 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 difficult, uh, or just muscle aches and pains. To you know, twice fold higher chance of having that. Uh, prolonged symptoms if you had uh, COVID. So these are things I don't want. Uh, there's another tallying study looking at this in kids. What about children less than 18? They had 129 uh, children and for 57% uh, had symptoms at greater than 120 days. So, uh, you know, that's a, you know, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. That's a big deal. Two, myocarditis inflammation of the heart. That's a big deal. 2%. You know, and then other symptoms, you know, imagine, you know, you're, you know, like my son's 13, he's developing his whole identity right now. There's so much going on in his adolescent brain for him not to be able to sleep or have respiratory issues with all the sports he's trying to play or congestion, fatigue, muscle aches and pains, joint pains, and perhaps worst of all, difficulty concentrating. Uh, that's that's not where I want him to be at all. And certainly with this Delta variant running around, I'm glad that you know he's uh, he's hot, he's uh, vaccinated. And think about uh, you know okay myocarditis. Uh, there's a lot uh, in, you know a lot of misinformation out there. And this this Italian study with 129 children showed that the risk of myocarditis uh, long haul from COVID in the study was two percent, as mentioned. Now if you think about the the vaccine. 
a lot of detractors and people say, oh, the vaccine is dangerous, causes myocarditis, but that's a way, 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 way less chance of getting myocarditis from the vaccine than from the disease itself. So right here in and of itself, this is a major reason why I want to keep my son healthy, why I got him vaccinated. Um, and then just uh, you think about uh, the full licensure. I know it's frustrating that we don't have full licensure yet. I, I, I'm frustrated too by that, but it's not, uh, it's not going to be tomorrow. It's still hopefully this fall. Uh, Pfizer, Moderna, they applied in May and June, um, uh, but it may not happen until January. So we just have to sort of continue to um, you know, wait for that, but I wouldn't wait for that to get vaccinated. Uh, I think that'll help convince a lot of people, but, um, but don't hold your breath if you're waiting for that. I would get vaccinated now anyways, um, because we've, you know, you think about the millions and millions and millions of doses of these vaccines that have already been given. It's crazy how much has already been done. It's not like we're saying, hey, we had, you know, in the, the early stages, we had 30,000 people volunteer to get the vaccine. You know, let's go after it. Now there's no excuse. I mean, millions of people uh, across the world, uh, almost a billion uh, or over a billion have had uh, the vaccine. So um, I think it's pretty safe to say <laughs> these numbers are very high to say that the, uh, the chance of having a bad reaction is extremely low. These are very safe uh, vaccines. And uh, if, frankly, it's a, I don't understand why it's taking the FDA so long to approve them, uh, frankly, because of the safety profiles we all know are so, so good. But anyways, um, so what about young children? We're talking about, uh, so right now, it's a, it's, uh, there's uh, an emergency use authorization for 12 and older. I told you my son's vaccinated. But what about lower than that? Like from 5 to t uh, 11 years old, um, we're expecting that EUA to come through mid winter sometime this year <clears throat> and then a few months later the two to five year old should come through and then eventually in the first half of 2022 in the spring we're going to see that really early uh, uh stage from six months to two years come through for the uh emergency youth authorization so so stay tuned if you have younger kids at home this vaccine is coming your way you just have to hold out a little bit longer and uh, absolutely if i had a, a younger kid at home i would for sure be getting them this vaccination um, so what's going on at Delta? I mean, uh, I can tell you at UCI, we've had some breakthrough cases. 75% of our breakthrough cases have been with Delta. Breakthrough means you're fully vaccinated and you got the vaccine and you got the, uh, you tested positive for the virus. And so uh, we've had uh, about 30 cases of breakthrough uh, cases where people actually test positive, even though they're vaccinated. So does that mean the vaccine is not working? Absolutely not. We know that the vaccine is not 100% um, effective. We know it's, uh, it was 95% effective against the previous uh, strains. Unfortunately, those strains have been allowed to mutate uh, amongst the unvaccinated, and that has resulted in uh, some more resistance in the Delta variant to uh, vaccinated individuals. Now, we have 10,000 employees at UCI. It's a very large organization. And so when people are off-site, uh, doing behavior that is totally allowable per California Department of Public Health, per the governor. This behavior, you know, with the mask uh, mandate's been lifted, totally allowable, but, you know, indoors with unmasked with individuals who are not vaccinated is a risky behavior. And fortunately, that's how uh, some, some of the, this occurred with the about 30 cases of the breakthrough. And so, um, 
it's just something to be aware of that, um, yes, it's protective, but this, felt, this Delta variant is very infectious. So it's um, so don't assume that the vaccine is going to protect you 100%. It does uh, avoid uh, hospitalizations and certainly death, um, but you can still get the disease and you could still transmit the disease uh, for up to 14 days, even if you're vaccinated. So that is uh, something to be aware of. And so that's why it's really important, even if you're vaccinated, to mask certainly indoor uh, social events, especially around unknown vaccinated status. So um, so like going to the store, I put a mask on when I'm indoors uh, again. So that's uh, just what I do, because I know that even though I feel really good about my vaccine, I don't want this Delta variant. And I certainly don't want to spread it to somebody else, potentially who isn't vaccinated, who'd get really sick. So how do you risk your, how do you assess your risk of COVID if you do get exposed? Well, it's, uh, it's very simple. So um, it depends on the vaccination status of your close contacts. And, and it's also good to remember that you can be contagious even though you don't have symptoms for about two days. And so that's, that's how viruses are so sneaky. That's how they, that's how they spread, right? Because if you don't know that you have it and you're spreading it, that's, um, that's good if you're a virus because that's how you can get spread to other people. So if, so if, you're, if, you're, if you're unvaccinated and you're not masked and you're not distanced, of course, you have no protection. And um, if you're masked and undistanced, you still have a moderate risk and that kind of depends on how snug your your mask fits and how well you you know you're observing um, you know the uh, the hand hygiene around touching your face the way you take your mask off all those things and certainly if you're uh, masked and you're distanced eh, then your risk does go down now if you're vaccinated and you're unmasked and undistanced the risk is certainly still there especially with the delta variant so. Um, you know, it's better, it's, it's, a, you know, you're still at risk about 36% if you're unmasked on distance, the studies proving the efficacy of the vaccine were done in people who were masked and undistanced. I'll say that again, the studies in the vaccine were done in people who were masked and undistanced, which is why we see a 12% uh, breakthrough rate of the vaccine, because People, even though they're wearing a mask, and I'm talking about uh, uh, a, a non-N95 mask, a regular mask, uh, if you're wearing an N95 mask, this all goes down to a zero, zero chance of risk. But if you are uh, wearing a regular mask and you're undistanced, you still have a good, much better protection than if you were not wearing a mask. And of course, if you're masked and distanced, you're fine. So. This is why I wear a mask, even though I have a vaccine and everywhere I go indoors. Um, now, if I'm home with my family and we're all vaccinated and somebody comes to the house and I know that person's vaccinated uh, and I might talk to them about kind of where they've been and stuff and what they've been up to. And if they just went to Lollapalooza and uh, they didn't wear a mask the whole time, I'd probably have everybody wear masks if we were indoors with each other. So that's sort of how I uh, I would apply this. But if it's like, um, the people coming over, I know them, they're all vaccinated and they are uh, not, uh, you know, engaging in, uh, you know, sort of risky uh, activity, then I, we have our masks down. Um, and I'm just assessing the level of risk based on the situation. Now, um, what's next? Unfortunately, uh, there have been a, a lot of resist, uh, you know, resistance to getting the vaccine. And as you can see, 
that's resulted in a lot of the ability for these viruses to replicate. Uh, and whenever they replicate, there's a chance that there could be a, uh, a mutation. And if a mutation makes it easier for them to spread, then that mutation is going to dominate. And this is what we're seeing. And so um, that's how the Delta variant is really making its way through everything. And so certainly when school starts, which is in a couple of weeks, it's the season's changing and we've got holidays coming up, right? We've got Labor Day, we've got um, Thanksgiving, we have, uh, you know, and then the winter holidays. And so like all of these holiday gatherings, it's just so difficult culturally when you see your family and you think, oh, they're vaccinated, but then, oh, they're coming home from college where their roommate wasn't vaccinated. And, you know, it's so hard to keep everyone's masks on in these holiday gatherings. I think they're really the toughest ones where it's just like the people that you love and you know, and you think, oh, this person would never hurt me with a virus. It's like, you can't help but wonder that. But the truth of the matter is these are the assassins. <laughs> it's really difficult in these situations to remember that the virus doesn't care who, how much you love somebody. It's going to make its way through um, people if they don't have a mask on. So during these holiday gatherings, you know, if you have a big family, people are coming over, really, it sounds tough to say this, but everybody needs to have a mask on indoors. Uh, even if they're vaccinated, if they're, if they've at all been interacting indoors and uh, with, with people who aren't vaccinated. So anyways, um, what about, uh, what are we doing at the University of California? Quick update here. This is pretty intense. What's going on at the University of California? University of California Office of the President. That's the entire UC system across the state. We're a giant organization. And we are embarking upon a mandatory vaccine policy. We may be one of the largest, if not the largest organization in the country to do this. I don't know. Um, but uh, everybody gets vaccinated or you cannot come on site. Staff, faculty, students, contractors, volunteers, no option to wear a mask instead of vaccinate. Now, like a tiny percentage of people, way less than 1%, could actually get a medical exemption or religious exemption, but that's extremely rare. Um, so it already went into effect at the med school, which is uh, in Irvine, and uh, it will go into effect September 1st at the hospital in Orange. And so I think, I know I'm really excited about this because this is gonna make the whole place a lot safer and it's best practices, it's um, really sort of, you know, uh, doubling down on, on our core beliefs as, a, as what I think is one of the best institutions in the state, in the country. So I'm really excited and proud that uh, my, uh, my employer decided to do this. So this is what they're telling us uh, at UCI. Currently, uh, if you are outdoors and you're vaccinated, you have to wear a mask. Now that seems a little bit weird. Like, okay, well, hold on a minute. I thought if I'm outdoors, you know, it's hard to get. Uh, true, but you know, when you're on a medical campus walking around the medical center and, you know, even though there's a lot of outdoor sort of areas to connect between the buildings, I think it's just better that we send the message we've got these masks on because then you're not like taking it off, putting it off, taking it off, putting it off as you go in and out of the building. So I think that's really helpful. Um, certainly if you're indoors, you got the mask on. And if you're in a patient care area, you're masking and you're distancing uh, as, as much as you can uh, away, six feet away from everybody. Now, uh, currently, if you're unvaccinated, they're 
um, there is a way to um, mask and be on campus, but starting September 1st, that goes away. And so either you're vaccinated or you're not here. And, um, and yeah, with that, I will, uh, I'll wrap it up. I just want to give a kind of quick update what we got going on and sort of my thoughts about what's happening with Delta and how important it is to, of course, get vaccinated and get your kids vaccinated and uh, wear a mask around those who may have been around unvaccinated individuals as this Delta variant can definitely spread. So thank you very much uh, for having me. So Dr. Fox has done a terrific job giving us a framework. Uh, at the end of the program, we, I ask him a number of FAQs, really specific questions about uh, carpooling, a number of things that all of us uh, want to ask uh, and want to get kind of practical understanding. Because again, our goal is to give you not just the what, but the how. And in the spirit of that, uh, we have a, a wonderful community pediatrician, uh, Brittany Barto Owens, I've known actually before she went to medical school, uh, terrific uh, person, community-based pediatrician, and she'll answer a number of the questions that many of us want to ask regarding our kids. And so uh, it's about a 12-minute video, and we will listen to what she has to say about our kids. Brittany, thank you so very much for being so helpful during uh, this time. You've been just a godsend to us to help us understand what's going on in pediatrics in the community. Um, the first question is, now that we're having the Delta surge, what are the most common questions that you're being asked by families? Sure. So now that the Delta variant is having a surge, not as much in our area, but as in, you know, in most of the country, a lot of people are asking, do they need to be worried about Delta for their kids? Um, do they need to start masking in schools again? What is my opinion about masking in schools and should their kids get vaccinated? So how bad is Delta? It is, it's very, you know, it's a lot different than the first one in terms of the severity of transmission. It's at least two times more transmissible. There is like 100,000 times more viral particles. It's a lot more contagious, which is going to mean a lot more people are going to get sick again. So we have to take this pretty seriously. Yes. I mean, if you if you look at the data from the UK or from other countries that have already seen it, we're following exactly in their footsteps. And we have a we've got weeks to go if we're going to if we continue along their trend. So it's gonna be getting a lot higher. So the, the American College of Pediatrics and CDC are recommending masks for schools. What do you tell families? I, I tell them I completely agree with the AAP and the CDC. They are concerned that every child under 12 is unvaccinated, so should absolutely be wearing a mask. Even the people who are above 12 years old and vaccinated, it's still a pretty small percentage and there is data to suggest that even vaccinated people can spread it. So again, an indoor setting like a school, every person should be masking. I agree with the universal masking policy. So can you put to rest this concern that masks can harm children? Yes, there is no evidence to suggest that masks are dangerous. Um, doctors have been wearing masks for long periods of time, especially surgeons or people in infectious wards for decades, and there's never been any concern from their perspective. And again, masks are safe for kids. Absolutely. 
when the vaccines, you have small children and you're a mom, uh, when the vaccines are available for younger children, will, will you vaccinate your kids? As long as the data suggests that it's safe, I'm absolutely going to vaccinate them. They're, the studies are ongoing now and I'm really hoping they'll be coming out in the next couple of months. If the studies are shown to be safe, I'm going to vaccinate them, absolutely. And for children between the ages of uh, 12 and 17, the, uh, the 16 and uh, uh, under 16, uh, would you recommend va vaccination at this time anywhere in the country? Absolutely. Every 12-year-old up, I ask them about their vaccination status and suggest that they get vaccinated against COVID. We're hearing that, uh, that a lot of children are not getting the other vaccines because there's anxiety over vaccinations. What's your message to families regarding that? I think that every vaccine on the market has been rigorously studied to make sure that it's safe. If a vaccine is not safe, it's pulled up the market. That has happened. So any vaccine on the market now is safe and I recommend that everyone get them on the, the schedule recommended. Brittany, can you address this concern of infertility caused by the vaccines in girls and boys? Yes, it, it's a complete rumor. Um, there's no scientific data. There's no mechanism. There's no evidence to suggest any link with infertility. It was something that someone suggested outside of the medical community, I think, and has no basis in, in reality. It's evidenceless. So no, no concerns for infertility at all. So now when we think about our kids and our normal activities, uh, what should we do about play dates and social distance now that we have Delta, which is really a new disease? So I still think that we should be doing things outdoors if we're gonna be doing things. I think it's really good if you're having play dates with family members who can be vaccinated, being vaccinated and only having unvaccinated kids you know, be a small percentage of the play date and always doing everything outside. Now, schools will not be able to maintain a greater social distance and we've got a much more contagious uh, form of the virus that we know and we know that aerosol spread is a real danger. Um, what are your thoughts regarding our schools and what we can do? I think we should be continuing to do the exact same mitigation measures we had previously. So universal masking, trying to have good ventilation, trying to keep kids in small cohorts. Um, you know, not, none of them are perfect, but you, you know, with the Swiss, Swiss cheese model, every layer is going to help a little bit. So just trying to layer up on mitigation measures. Brittany, what is the situation with MISC? What's the update on this inflammatory disorder that can happen in children? Um, I think it's still pretty much like nothing has changed in terms of the evidence around it. It's, it's an inflammatory condition that happens three to four weeks after COVID. Sometimes the kids don't even know that they had COVID prior to this happening. Um, it's not very common, but very severe. You know, two thirds of kids end up in the PICU when they get it. Um, and, you know, one more reason to, to get vaccinated and to social distance and wear masks so that you don't get COVID and have that risk of that secondary thing happening. And since it's an inflammatory response, they could have a mild case of COVID and yet still develop MISC. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. Yeah. Some people had no symptoms prior to getting MISC. 
So what's your advice regarding our new normal and multi-generational households with elder parents, even though they might be vaccinated? Um, how, how do we operate our lives in the, in the face of Delta? So I think people, even if you're vaccinated, you just need to be more cognizant about large social spaces, going to indoor events. Um, I personally am not going to do indoor things because even though I am vaccinated, I know that I can still get it. And I know that, you know, there's data suggest I can still transmit it to my two young children who are not vaccinated. Um, so I think, I don't think we need to go back to, you know, staying in our houses and not seeing anyone, but we need to make smart choices and be aware of our surroundings a little more again. Yeah, Brittany, is it safer to go on a car trip versus a trip on the airlines with our kids? How would you break down the risk between the two? I'm, you know, what you're thinking about is exposure to people. So it sort of depends on what you do. If you take, you know, a direct flight, you're only being exposed to the people on that airline. If you wear a mask the entire time and if you need to eat, eat like at a different time that everyone else on the plane eats, you're minimizing your exposure a little bit. If you're on a car ride, if you're going to a lot of gas stations, you're gonna be exposed, exposed to people as well. So I think it sort of depends on what you're doing on the car and the flight. The overall travel recommendation would be to try to minimize exposures to other people as much as possible and We're have the kids in masks the whole time. Great. We're using the expression is don't dare share air. <laughs> people can remember it. Don't yeah. dare share air. Is that a reasonable approach? If you're going on a car trip, you stay out of indoor places. Uh, you're very careful about uh, where you take your bio breaks. Uh, keep everybody in masks and just be cognizant of the fact that you might be exposed to unvaccinated people that could could infect you. Yes, absolutely. Those are all all unknown variables when you're going to be around people you don't know. So, so now, Brittany, if we talk about uh, comparing vaccinate, vaccinated people and unvaccinated adults. So the adults, um, the, the four questions are, can we, can we get infected? Can we spread it? Can we get sick right away with, um, with the flu-like symptoms and get, get COVID? And can we get long haul disease? Is it reasonable to say that both vaccinated and unvaccinated people both can get it just lower risk for those that are vaccinated, but still a high enough risk that we need to be careful. Yes, definitely. It seems to be preventing, the vaccine prevents hospitalizations and deaths very well still, but it's not always preventing mild disease. So as we think about the kids that are at that 12 through 16 to age 17, um, can they get it? Can they spread it? Can they get sick and they can can they get long haul? So yeah, for all of those answers, more than the previous variant. They can, yeah, they can get it more than the previous variant, spread it more. There we there's no data to suggest it's a more severe illness. It may be about the same, and they're probably going to get long haul in the same percentage. But again, data still out on some of those answers. And for our adolescents and young people with the prior versions of the virus, they were still able to spread it, but maybe about 50% of what adults are. With the Delta variant, do you think it's more? It's a guess because we don't have data. 
Yeah, I'm I'm not sure the Delta variant is terrifying to me. So it's possible. It's just so much more contagious. So I'm not sure if it's going to make it a lot more contagious for adolescents. And then finally, uh, our kids uh, over the age of two, uh, you agree with recommending re recommending masks and, and can they get can they get it? Can they spread it? Can they get sick? And can they get long haul? Those two to 12. So they, they can get it. And it seems like they are spreading it to their family members. Yeah. Most of those kids are having not very severe disease. Um, and it, again, they're, they're still seeming to get long haul, unfortunately. And I absolutely recommend masking in the two and up. My two-year-old started wearing his mask right after he turned two and he sometimes leaves his sit on longer than he needs to. It does not bother him at all. <laughs> well, Brittany, thank you so very much. You've just been so, just been so helpful to us to understand what's going on in the community. And thank you for helping us be aware of the Delta variant. As we, the final question is, do you think our new normal in the future is going to be that we just have to adjust to to these surges, these variants, and, and just deal with them and just be a really aggressive about vaccines and distance and masking and the other precautions? Yeah, I think we need to learn to be flexible because this isn't going away tomorrow. So when it is not as high numbers, maybe we can do a little more, but when the numbers surge, we need to be able to pivot and, and be flexible and go back to those previous precautions. So being flexible, I think, is just what we're going to have to do over the next year. And, and, you know, our strategy, our framework has been to assess your internal risks to the family, your inside risks, the outside risks, which are the balance between immunity, community immunity and the infection rate, and look at the, those two sets of threats in light of whether you've got immune compromised, you've got young kids, you've got older people in your in your household, and then adjust your behaviors for um, for readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. Still a reasonable approach now in light of these surges. Yeah, no, that's perfect. <laughs> so we've been really appreciative of uh, of Brittany's uh, help, Dr. Bartos' help. Uh, over the years, uh, she over the last year, the last 15 months, she's been terrific. Uh, next, uh, I'd like to introduce Mr. David Besht. He's an award-winning educator. Uh, he's been a dean of lower school students. He's been a MedTech master instructor since uh, 2015. He's a co-author on uh, the papers that we discussed. There are both uh, journal papers, and he'll be a co-author of our scientific uh, papers and our study of uh, the thousand family responses. He's an Eagle Scout advisor to those of, uh, to for those of you that are uh, champions of the Scout program and a merit badge counselor. Also, uh, my son uh, Charlie Dedham, who is an incoming uh, sophomore, he's a co-founder of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. Uh, he co-leads our Lifeguard Surf Program. He's a junior MedTech instructor, uh, a lifeguard certified lifeguard. Uh, uh, and uh, finishing his Eagle Scout project with uh, one of our MedTech uh, uh, programs. Um, 
Mr. Bashka was uh, named uh, the top teacher of the year by Parent uh, Parenting Magazine. Uh, and he's, for my money, one of the best educators I've ever had the pleasure of being with. This is a picture of uh, the first group of kids who we started with, with our MedTech program for bystander rescue care. And we taught the, the Stop the Bleed program, wanted to see if these, uh, these Cub Scouts, they were in their last year of Cub Scouts, could actually retain uh, how to uh, undertake CPR, how to uh, administer stop the bleed uh, techniques for, for bleeding if it scared them. And it was very successful in Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Boats, Chief Adcox, um, David Bash, uh, Charlie and I launched the program here in Southern California. Um, we, we've been using this term for many years of the chief family officer, someone taking the role in a family to take the lead on putting a, a plan together and how we might work together. And we've asked uh, David Bash to really address this. His, his stock and trade is actually not only teaching the children, but spending as much energy and effort in educating their parents. And that's what makes him such a world-class uh, educator. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Boats came up with the idea of uh, the care huddle, being able at the beginning of an event to find out who's going to administer CPR, who's going to call uh, EMS, what's the rally point for first responders. And we took that framework, Mr. Besh, Charlie and I, uh, when we had this terrible surge in thanks over Thanksgiving and we saw it coming over the holidays, and put together a rapid holiday huddle checklist and came up with the phrase, be your family lifeguard, because lifeguards are 90% prevention and 10% rescue. Uh, we put together this uh, program, and uh, you may not recognize him, but uh, the former CEO of Medtronic, Bill George, is a close family friend, and this was his family. They were visiting us for Thanksgiving, and uh, Mr. Bash, Charlie, and I put this uh, together that morning and then tested it, and then tested it with families and scout groups. And so uh, uh, yesterday, uh, uh, Charlie uh, recorded for you what, uh, uh, how we're going to apply this and why this is, uh, continues to be an important factor now with Delta. We thought that this family lifeguard idea may not be as, as important in the future, but it looks like it, it, it's going to be. The Delta virus is really serious and the family lifeguard role is even more important. That was it. So that's about as much as you can get a 15 year old to kind of help you out uh, to communicate. Uh, uh, this and Mr. Bash, we'd uh, like to have you kind of address this issue, if you would please, uh, of um, of the family chief family officer and what do we need to know about uh, helping our families in light of what we've learned from uh, Dr. Bartow and uh, Dr. Mansfield and uh, Dr. Fox. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Denham. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, well, as an educator and, and someone who's job is not just to educate my students, but also to educate families. Um, regarding the Delta variant and everything going on in society, I think as the chief family officer, um, our role has some certain benchmarks that we need to meet. Number one, we need to be honest with everybody in our family. And I can't stress this enough. You need to be honest with everybody regardless of age. I think too often um, adults and parents shy away from giving honest factual information to even their youngest children when we need to remember that these these young children are are hearing what's going on the the you know they hear the tv they hear people when they're on their phones they see things going on they hear conversations they feel they may not be able to articulate it 
very precisely, but they feel what's going on. And so showing them the respect that you're going to give them honest information um, is, is key. And it's the first thing that I'm, I'm mentioning because I do think it's just that important in the order of uh, importance. Um, number two is the CFO of your family. You want to make sure that you're keeping, um, keeping up with the facts. Now, I know for myself personally, this can seem kind of overwhelming at times. And there's so many different things that are changing and, and verbiage and, you know, indoors, outdoors, masking, unmasking. There's a lot to keep up with, but you know, to do your best with that and so that you can relay that information with your entire family unit um, is very important. Um, giving everybody in the family a voice. This isn't with the picture you see here with the, the, the dad taking notes at the table. It looks to me like he's really listening and giving everybody at that table an opportunity to share their voice, to share their feelings, to share their concerns, to share their ideas. Getting buy-in from the family regardless of age, that young girl over there that's doing her coloring, <laughs> frankly, she looks to be the most engaged out of anybody in that photo, um, giving everybody a voice, letting them share their concerns, share their ideas, um, very important. So honesty, keeping up with the facts, giving everybody a voice. And uh, finally, it's, it's putting into practice what you and your family, what plan you have, and practice this, update it, keep people sharp with their skills, keep people sharp with their communication. It's very similar to when you have an exit strategy for fires or earthquakes or floods or tornadoes or hurricanes, wherever you might be in the country, these, these skills will eventually erode. You have to keep them up. You have to um, make sure that everybody understands their role. And as the chief family officer, we have a, we have a vital role to play in as a, as a community member outside of our home, but also inside the walls of your home, making sure everyone feels like they're part of the team, making sure everybody feels like they have ownership in the plan, that they have responsibilities and that you keep track of those responsibilities. It reduces fear, it reduces anxiety, and it makes your family a much more effective unit. And with the, um, the video that you just showed about your son, Charlie, um, instituting the, the holiday lifeguard, that was something that we, we came up with hours before. And you would think, oh my goodness, there's no way that we can even have, you know, a 15 year old kind of roll this thing out. No way. You give them an opportunity to show leadership. You give them honest information. You give them a voice and then you give them a goal. You give them a task, give them a, give them a, a mission. And these, these young children, they can carry them out. I mean, you and I know we've been teaching MedTAC to, I mean, I even teach it to my, my four-year-old son. He knows you push hard and fast in the center of the chest which for a four-year-old, that's all he needs to know to communicate CPR to somebody who might be needing help. So um, CFOs have a vital role inside their walls of their home and also as part of a greater community. But honesty with your family, keeping up as much as you can with the facts, giving people a voice and practicing, practicing your checklist, practicing what everybody's roles are, um, are just great strategies to keep yourself and your family um, emotionally and physically well during these confusing and, and scary times. Well, thank you, David. And, and I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge you for saving the first life with MedTech. You learned the mm -hmm. recovery position on a Thursday when I taught it to you to teach third to sixth graders. And uh, within 
48 hours, you save the, the, the next life. We'll hear on our panel from Danny Policiccio, who is our, our film student, who's now at NYU Film School, uh, saved the third life. And, and one of the dads who you work with as a Cub Scout leader uh, saved the second life. So three lives saved, just in the people, the, the small group uh, that we know. Uh, just so you all know, this uh, holiday lifeguard checklist went out to 18,000 people over the holidays uh, with, uh, with really great reviews. So we really uh, appreciated, uh, David, you just stepping up so fast. Um, and uh, talk about stepping up. Uh, I'd now like to come to our re reactor panel. Uh, Bill Adcox is the chief security officer for the MD Anderson Cancer Institute and the chief of police of the police department that serves in Texas Medical Center where I train. Uh, the chief uh, is also a winner of the Pete Conrad Global Patient Safety Award. Uh, more importantly, he's one of the finest men I know, uh, has been a terrific uh, leader uh, and um, is, has been able to implement the programs that we're discussing through his law enforcement officers and security folks. Uh, Chief, before we go to some of our young people in our college and young adults, uh, Chief, do you want to react to what you've heard today and just let people know what this idea of left of boom is? Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Daniel, and welcome to everyone. Um, let me just say, first and foremost, this is a, a very informative program. I think it's pointing out how serious the uh, Delta uh, variant is, but also the other variants that are coming after that. The criticalness of all of us getting vaccinated and all of us doing our part. Um, left a boom, that was a concept that was developed in the military as they were going to Congress to get additional funds. Left a boom is simply uh, a term that's about prevention, primary prevention. How do we do the things we necessarily have to do to prevent something from actually occurring in the first place? And, uh, and not just you know, target hardening or protection uh, type of uh, issues. So left to boom is let's get in front of these things. What we're doing today, we talk, about, we talk about taking a vaccination, we talk about social distancing, we talk about masking, we talk about you know, uh, washing our hands and not being in crowds. Frankly, that's all left to boom. That's being preventative, that's protecting ourselves first and, and secondly, and most importantly, at least to me, is our families. And so we need to do that. Uh, I can tell you right now, and just real briefly, that uh, here, even in our own hospital, uh, we're gearing up for, this, for the uh, surge. The surge is upon us. Right, we're opening up additional wards now. We're working on the, the beds now, getting them ready. We've moved patients around. Uh, the Texas Medical Center is already filled up at, uh, at capacity one. They've got two other capacities, two and three, which means they open up additional capacity. Uh, we know how serious this is. We know it's out there. Uh, we know that we are suffering from COVID fatigue. Uh, we're suffering from people wanting to go out. It's summertime, vacation, et cetera. And now going back to school, it's just, it, we're really headed for a really, really terrible situation. Uh, what we're dealing with right now is, is, is a true humanitarian tragedy something that we all need to be aware of and we need to get behind helping one another to do the right thing. So uh, all I do is I, 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 I call on our younger leaders that are with us today and many others to, to set the example and help lead us into success of, of um, getting past this, this, this tremendous uh, tragedy that's upon us. Thank you, Dr. Denham. 
Thank you, Chief. And we'll come back to you at the end. Again, this is going to be an extended program of two hours because Delta is so critical. We've got more information coming and also a number of the FAQs. Uh, Danny Palacicchio is a uh, NYU film student. Uh, he was an associate producer with us as we produced multimedia regarding the MedTech training programs and disseminating it. I think most importantly, uh, he has saved a life from what he learned. Uh, Danny, you're our resident expert storyteller. What advice do you have to families to help tell the stories that might move the movable middle towards vaccination or towards safer behaviors and staying out of indoor spaces as we, as we head through uh, this uh, COVID fatigue period? So the best thing I could say is keep it personal. Share your own stories you've had either with COVID or you know how the positive reactions to the vaccine. And I think the best way to help move the middle is to keep it personal. As with stories, people are most sympathetic to things that they can relate to. I think just keep it relatable, keep it, you know, uh, similar to yourself. And the powerful emotional stories like what Dr. Mansfield shared is probably way more important than a bunch of PowerPoint slides, once we know the data, isn't that true? It's, a, it's, it's the emotion that moves us to, to make a change. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Well, thanks for continuing to help us and, and for being one of our leaders of our, uh, of our program regarding uh, the conversation, uh, the vaccination conversation. It's been uh, terrific having you uh, there. Um, Nick Scheel is, uh, I want to grow, I always tell Nick that I want to grow up to be Nick. He is, uh, he just graduated from the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is, uh, he is a salvage diver, a rescue diver. Uh, he is uh, a lifeguard. Uh, and he'll be a, a ski patrol this uh, this winter before he starts whatever graduate school he starts uh, he decides to uh, tackle. He's an EMT who uh, understands this first line issue and has ridden the ambulances and and been right there to save lives. Nick, your your advice and and your reaction to what you heard today. Yeah, my advice to everyone is to try to move that movable middle into the zone of getting vaccinated. I uh, have a lot of colleagues and friends who have been on the fence, who are still on the fence, and I try to do my part to move people um, towards the vaccine. Dr. Mansfield's story today really resonated with me as something that I think we can all do moving forward to help convince um, or shift some of our, our peers and colleagues towards getting the vaccine. And that's sort of looking at people as peers, as friends, as much as we do um, as a medical professional, uh, a patient to professional relationship, being able to uh, level with the people that we are around, uh, whether they are a patient or a friend or a colleague, um, and explaining to them personal stories, um, personal anecdotes, uh, as well as the facts to help them feel comfortable with the decision to move towards getting vaccinated. Because for a lot of people, I think the uncertainty of the virus, as well as the rapidly evolving situation can be really daunting, um, scary. And I think while the facts are extremely important and allow people to make very informed decisions, I think the personal stories, anecdotes, and that peer-to-peer -peer relationship, that friendship helps move people towards uh, becoming vaccinated, which as we can hear today is extremely important to keeping ourselves safe, the people around us safe. So that's my advice to everyone here.
Fantastic, fantastic. Um, uh, what we'd like to do now is, uh, is ask uh, one of our recent uh, members who've joined our uh, student outreach and young adult uh, team is David uh, Grinsfelder. Uh, David uh, comes to us, he's a graduate, uh, he's a young adult who is uh, in this vital group that are graduates of, uh, uh, of college and out in the workplace. Uh, he uh, graduated from, uh, from Berkeley uh, and uh, currently uh, works in business affairs, the business affairs department of Amazon Studios. He studied political science and journalism, uh, has real compassion for this, these COVID-related re projects, uh, is also a waterman out here on the, on, on the West Coast. Uh, David, your take on what you've heard to date before we head uh, into one more session with Dr. Peabody. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Dunham, for having me and for the rest of the panelists. Um, you, you just used the word that was coming to mind repeatedly for me, and that was compassion. I think there is fatigue related to COVID. I think there's also fatigue related to having conversations about COVID, and people are tired of being preached at or being talked to excessively. And I found that it's something I'm guilty of when I'm engaging in conversation with people who are hesitant or who are you know, anti-vaccine. And I think it's really important to remember that the compassion, the place you speak from has to be a place of compassion. And that goes a long way with helping people feel like they're being talked to, not being talked at. So I, I guess I would reiterate a little bit of what Nick just said and continue to, to have conversations in a way that doesn't feel accusatory or doesn't feel uh, like you're short tempered with people. Fantastic, absolutely, and uh, thank you for joining us to work with a terrific uh, a group that are uh, sharing uh, the vaccination conversation with high school students. And as we, we head towards uh, what are likely to be many more mandates, uh, it, it will help people, I think, the movable metal. And we don't want to poke people in the eye that are adamant about not being vaccinated, but it's really the group that are afraid and worried that, uh, that I think we can help. I'm going to come back to Jamie Aristorza as a reactor at the end. We've recorded him. What I wanted to do now is set up Dr. Peabody. And again, we're going further, longer than we usually do our 90-minute programs because of Delta. And these are the 10 best practices we covered in our last community of practice, which we thought was the last one that the last program that we thought that we would lead. And uh, I'm going to set the, set up the slides and then have uh, Dr. Peabody, who did a terrific job addressing these issues of the 10 best practices. Uh, Dr. Peabody is Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at uh, UCSF. UCSF, for those of you in healthcare, is ranked number nine in the U.S. News and World Report. Uh, congratulations to, to Chief Adcox and Dr. Boats, number one cancer center, and uh, the, our team from Mayo, uh, number one uh, general hospital uh, in the United States at Rochester. So uh, uh, Top Peabody has been a colleague. Uh, we've worked together since I met him at Harvard. He came up to me when I was giving a talk uh, for uh, David Gergen, who uh, is at, at the Kennedy School, and Top was a three-year, a third-year medical student, came up to me and said, I'd really like to work in this area of patient safety and we've been working very closely and got him involved with the WHO. He's uh, now uh, leading the director of the Innovation Center at UCSF in San Francisco. And he's going to address these 10 best practices. We've talked a lot about vaccines. Um, what about coming home safe? How does the Delta virus impact now the balance between washing surfaces versus masking versus uh, being indoors? Uh, how does Delta change what we're focused on? 
We did, and each one of these are programs that we've already done. You can go back to our website and watch the individual programs. But when we entitled one on keeping the family safe, we talked about what is your risk of your family inside the four walls of your facility? And then what is the risk outside, whether they're roommates or your family members? Um, do you have somebody that has a hyper reaction to viruses? Do you have somebody over 65? Do you have somebody immune compromised? One in three people have cancer. Half of them uh, have to receive chemotherapy or radiation therapy which is what I did as a cancer doctor. So what are the internal risks? Then what are the outside risks, which is the rate of infections in the community and the community immunity? That should really drive our decisions, not that we just take something off of social media. We talked, uh, and, and we'll have a clip later regarding the family safety plan. What are the four R's, which uh, are critically important? Uh, and we put together a strategy and templates for you to do that. Readiness, being ready for the next surge, response if somebody gets infected, rescue when somebody gets sick. How do you know when to go to the hospital? How do you know uh, what to do? How do you get them home? Uh, recovery immediately after when they come home and they're still infectious, what do you do? How did that change with Delta? And then resilience, how do we make our target of our home or our living unit with our roommates a harder target for that virus to, 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 to hit us? We wanna thank uh, Heather Foster who can't be with us today, she's off the grid, um, but she and Dr. Boats helped us uh, with the strategy of how do you take a room in your house and turn it into an isolation room to take care of someone who is sick if they can't stay in the hospital, if the hospital is overwhelmed. And many people are sent home sick and are told, create an isolation room, take care of it, be careful. And people are not sure what to do. So we develop checklists actually from the hospitals. Uh, this is Heather Foster's picture, a frontline nurse, infection prevention advisor, uh, who helped us uh, with that program. And then Dr. Christopher Peabody and our other emergency medicine doctors, such as Dr. Fox and, and others helped us with, what do you do to take them to the emergency department? What do you, you know, keep your phone battery charged. You may not be able to go in with them. What are discharge precautions if you have to bring somebody home? We addressed all of these in terms of the emergency care loop uh, and which Dr. Peabody will address. Years ago, I worked with that TOF and I developed something called the five rights of emergency care and asked, well, what are the right things to do? Find the right place to go, the right provider, the right diagnosis, the right treatment, the right follow-up. We've got a videotape on our website that you can watch. Uh, I won't belabor the point so we stay on time today, but I suggest that that could be something everybody could watch uh, and then what to do when they're in the ICU. We've had so many friends and family members get sick and then they go in the ICU and can you go in to see them now that more people are vaccinated, they're changing the rules last in the prior months before uh, the holiday, before too many people were vaccinated, you had to commute by, com communicate by iPad. And so, but now what do we do and what can we expect? And then long haulers. We had an entire 90 minute program on long haul disease and had a wonderful physician who is an emergency preparedness physician at MD Anderson on behalf of the number one cancer center in the world who actually got long haul disease and explained what it's like. And again, as Chief Adcock said, left of boom is like where the red mark is there. That's where, that's where a bad thing happens. And it came from the military when IEDs were blowing up. Uh, and how can you get upstream to prevent that? So uh, we're going to now have uh, Dr. Uh, Peabody address these issues rapidly. How does Delta, now that we know a lot about Delta, now how do we get really practical uh, on these? And again, that's why we have an extended program today, and I appreciate everybody's attention.
So Todd, how seriously should we consider the Delta variant uh, in light of its contagiousness uh, and its likelihood of more lethal uh, impact and impact on children? Well, Chuck, I can speak from from two ways. One is uh, that the CDC director herself has said this is one of the most contagious respiratory viruses she's ever seen or heard about. And then I can speak from my own perspective, which is as an emergency physician in the Safety Net Hospital in San Francisco. And we had not, we had seen a really big decrease in COVID um, in early June, and I've seen a major uptick in COVID. It's like I'm having deja vu. Um, we're now having to go back to all of our um, normal protocols for COVID, and it's uh, really taken a lot for us to um, re-gear up, we think, for another surge, uh, given the Delta variant. So, Toph, one of our first Survive and Thrive Guide programs was to address the hot zone, warm zone, and safe zone, and put uh, a lot of emphasis on high contact surfaces and decontamination. How has that changed now with Delta, and what are your recommendations to families? Chuck, I think um, early on, we spent a lot of time thinking about contact surfaces, um, and we were um, bleaching everything. And then we found out that actually COVID is more transmissible through, uh, through the respiratory tract, right? And, uh, and it was um, airborne. And uh, Delta is actually even more contagious than the first strain of COVID that we were talking about. So it's actually um, prudent to, to revisit like, how you're actually um, thinking about those three zones that you mentioned. And so for me, the hot zone is the hospital. Um, and so I uh, still go to the hospital. I change out of all my clothes. I still wear an N95 mask. I put another mask over it and I have a face shield. Um, I never take anything that I've worn home. Um, and so my warm zone is basically the car. Um, I get home and I'm immediately in my cool zone. Um, and I change out of my clothes um, immediately, put them in the laundry and uh, take a shower and decontaminate. Um, I would say personally, I, we've had a less emphasis in my household on uh, surfaces uh, than we did in, initially. Um, and I think um, people need to look at their individual plan, um, consider that Delta variant is much more contagious um, than the previous COVID um, strain and, uh, and plan accordingly. So our second survive and thrive guide was entitled keeping our kids safe but we actually talked about our families and looking at the internal threats and vulnerabilities and our external threats and vulnerabilities to decide how we're going to behave and design our family plan that framework has held up pretty well how would you apply it to delta well chuck i think the framework is actually still right on uh it's one of those things that we we have to keep constantly revisiting but i would say the game changer here is vaccines um, the vaccine, you know, since you've uh, started your programs, we've uh, we've implemented vaccination and uh, and the vaccines are actually holding up quite well against Delta in that they uh, prevent hospitalization and, um, and de decrease your chance of actually dying from COVID. And so in that and that's holding up with Delta. And I, I think um, I would plan my internal and external kind of uh, plan based on my vulnerabilities. I have two small children. So we, uh, we are definitely with Delta um, becoming a, a lot more cautious. We're uh, masking um, in public. 
Um, but I'm also in a pretty low, um, I'm in a high vaccinated area that has a, um, a pretty low amount of positive tests at the moment. And so um, if I would lived in another part of the country that had a low vaccinated area, I would actually be a lot more cautious. I'd probably almost be to the point of lockdown, um, if, especially if I was in a state like Missouri right now, which has no ICU capacity at the moment uh, because of the Delta variant. We have a series of survive and thrive guide programs on building your family safety plan based on the five R's, which were readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. And by applying those, we were able to help people design a, a plan uh, uh, going forward. They were also the factors that we looked at with our research of more than a thousand family responses. Um, it looks like the five R's now applied to Delta really makes sense. How would you how would you apply readiness to uh, to the issue of, of Delta? So, Toph, uh, we put together a series of survive and thrive guides framing how a family could put together a family safety plan of readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. Um, that framework looks like something we really need to implement for, for Delta. Is that a fair statement? Chuck, it's more than fair. It's uh, something that we need to be aware that um, it's time to double down. It's time to uh, really dig deep and uh, redouble our efforts on uh, fighting COVID. Uh, the Delta variant is much more contagious. Um, it is uh, uh, much more infectious. Um, you, you have to have a much less exposure time to anyone that's infected with Delta. Um, and this is very, very serious. And I trust me, I know I go to the ER um, and work there um, with my colleagues day after day. And we're tired of COVID, Chuck. We're tired of it. And it's one of those things where we have to dig deep. We have to dig deep and we're not, we're not throwing out what works and uh, your framework works. And so um, I would definitely double down on the five R's, revisit it um, and, uh, and uh, be aware that the Delta variant is that much more contagious. One quick question on readiness as it applies to vaccination. There are many people out there that have been uh, have have uh, bought into misinformation, uh, and it's very clear that those who have had COVID or thought they had COVID really need to be vaccinated. Is that a fair statement? And is there solid evidence to support that? Chuck, there's very solid evidence. Um, you have to prime your immune system. Um, you, the vaccines work. If you've had COVID, you still need the vaccine. Great. And the fact that vaccinated people, as we look at our plan and go forward, that whether you're vaccinated or not, I can tell you with my family, we're masking up. If we have to go indoors, I've got a very vulnerable family member to have hyperimmune response to virus. Has been My son's been hospitalized twice with that. So we are as vigilant or more vigilant than we have been in using masks. And the focus we've had is on fit, filtration, and finish. Make sure good fit, make sure a really good filtration and double mask if we can or need to, and then finishes to be able to take care of the mask after and not contaminate yourself. Is that, is that a fair framework? Oh, that's a, that's an excellent framework. And I would say you're probably, you're in the top 1% of people that are, um, that are doing this Chuck. And it's something that we're implementing in our family again. Um, you know, we took the CDC guidelines seriously, especially in our community that hadn't really had many hospitalizations in COVID in early June. 
And uh, we started going out on, um, on our walks um, without a mask. Um, but I will tell you, I have never stopped masking indoors just because of my own personal comfort level. Now I think it's imperative that the entire community um, starts wearing masks again, especially indoors because of this Delta variant. One area that you, where you've been just such a fabulous contributor is uh, on the issue of emergency and emergency rescue and the, the R, which is rescue. Um, uh, is there anything you would add to the five uh, rights of emergency care that we, uh, that we uh, have developed and that we are playing for this audience? Is there anything that you would add to, uh, to those five, uh, five rights? So I think with uh, with COVID, um, we've we've definitely learned a lot. One is that um, uh, was the uh, initially was our visitor policy, um, and most hospitals around the country had actually shut down um, the emergency departments for visitors. Uh, we've now since opened that up, and I know hospitals are kind of revisiting that now that uh, with the Delta variant. But I would say that um, most vaccinated pe uh, persons um, will be allowed to visit their loved ones in our hospital. You will have to wear a mask and we want you to participate in your care um, of your loved one. And so it's great to come with uh, the past medical history of, of your loved one when they're in the hospital. And it's, uh, it's really important. And Chuck, we've emphasized this again and again um, to emphasize what uh, you should do upon discharge. Um, so really fundamentally understanding your diagnosis, the reasons to come back to the emergency department, and with COVID, um, to really fully understand how to isolate um, and keep your other family members safe within your households should somebody become infected. One of the areas where we had spent an awful lot of work, and then when COVID appeared to be receding, we thought, my gosh, we've done so much work on teaching people how to care for someone at home, and now we're right back where we were. Uh, caring for someone at home and creating an isolation environment and maintaining quarantine and isolation is more important than it was with the Hunan variant and with the UK alpha variant. Is that a fair statement? Oh, it's absolutely fair, Chuck, because it's more contagious. Uh, the, the virus is more contagious. It's one of the most infective um, respiratory viruses that the CDC director says she's ever seen. And so this is, this is a virus where we have to double down. But, but there is one, one savior, Chuck, and that is vaccination. Um, if you're caring for someone and you're unvaccinated, you will get COVID um, with the Delta variant. Um, you need to be vaccinated. Um, and so that's the number one priority, I think, for every family around the country. It's the number one thing. I wish uh, the vaccine was available to my small children because I would get them vaccinated right now. Um, I can't wait until that day um, because I'm going to feel a big sense of relief um, after these um, great vaccines are, are approved for my young children. And um, I, I know there's families like mine around the country that are um, really having and really scared for their young children. Um, and so I hope they don't get COVID. Um, but uh, the number one thing you can do if you're taking care of someone um, with COVID is to keep folks that are unvaccinated away from them. And uh, if you are the caregiver, to be vaccinated yourself and then double down on the precautions that you just mentioned uh, about the isolation, um, about uh, the way we care for uh, folks um, with COVID, the hand washing, all the things that we talked about, about at the beginning of the pandemic are true today with Delta.
So Tom, uh, as we look at uh, dealing with folks that are in the ICU, uh, we would just reemphasize the fact that uh, that um, there may be precautions and restrictions that may come down the pipe with this very communicable uh, disease and people need to be prepared that they may not be able to visit uh, and they really need to be able to emphasize communication and keeping that linkage with their loved one. Is that is that reasonable? Uh, that's more than reasonable. I know hospitals around the country, especially ones that are at capacity and in other states and regions um, around the country are, are having to go back to those policies just to try to prevent spread amongst in, in the hospital itself. Um, and so um, hospitals have gotten better at uh, being able to facilitate this communication. But if I'm at a hospital where the ICU has no other beds left and the ER is spilling out into the street and they're setting up tents, um, it's going to be hard to communicate um, with folks because the staff at the hospital is doing their best just to keep patients alive. And so um, being kind, being, uh, being um, uh, available when, uh, when staff are available to help facilitate that conversation with your loved one is, is going to be um, crucial. Um, but, uh, but, um, uh, but communication upon discharge, I think if, you're, if your loved one gets better, understanding the reasons for them to um, come back to the hospital and understanding the care that will go on within your, within your home while the person's still infectious um, are gonna be key to that communication. So Toph, uh, we've done a whole uh, program on long haulers and now we have the Delta virus and we don't have enough data yet to really support how many people get these long-term conditions, but we know it's a very, very big group and much bigger than we probably thought. What's your advice to those who think that uh, they may not have the risk for that and may not get vaccinated or may not take the care necessary to prevent getting COVID because they're young and they think, well, I might just get mild disease. Well, Chuck, there's, there's a couple of things that I would say to folks. One is that you're not the only person um, living on the planet. Um, you cannot be that selfish. We live in a community. You need to be vaccinated, not just for yourself, but for others. Um, and that's something that when we go to the hospital and we're there to serve you and your family, um, we expect you to be vaccinated. Um, it's the least you can do um, uh, for your community itself. And then if, you, if you're eligible for the vaccine and you haven't got it, please take the opportunity to do so. I couldn't say that more forcefully. And in fact, uh, you can see the frustration on uh, folks' faces when unvaccinated uh, people are coming in uh, to the hospital with COVID and with severe COVID symptoms. Now, as far as long haul COVID, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done to fully understand this uh, element of long haul COVID, but it can affect young people. Um, it, it just like, uh, just like uh, the acute symptoms of COVID can. Um, I will never forget um, the um, 35 year old uh, patient that I took care of early in the pandemic um, who ended up passing away from COVID. Um, the person had three children at home, um, was the only breadwinner in the household. And this is devastating. And, uh, you know, COVID can be won through vaccination and through taking the proper procedures that we've talked about many times on your program, Chuck. And so I would say that applies to long COVID, especially. Um, please get vaccinated. Um, please realize that COVID and Delta variant and long COVID symptoms could happen to you 
um, and, and to your loved ones. Great. Kaf, have you seen many cases of long COVID in the emergency department? Chuck, this is not a diagnosis I feel comfortable uh, making yet because of the evidence. And, uh, and, you know, I treat acute unscheduled emergencies and a lot of long COVID symptoms are um, being dealt with by my primary care colleagues. Um, and so I don't engage um, too much on, on the illness yet, except uh, through listening to programs like yours and trying to learn as much as possible about it. So, so talk as we look at uh, the three big opportunities we have, we have the opportunities to save lives right now. And that is through vaccination and through managing people that do are at risk and properly caring for them. There's on the reopening bridge, which it looks like we've got two, you know, one step forward, two steps back with, with Delta, and we're going to be on that, that, that bridge. But there's also the life-saving things we can do as bystanders, uh, as good Samaritans. Uh, and I know you believe that it's important that bystanders learn rescue skills, and we really can help rescue. Our, 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 our family and friends by maintaining really good uh, principles of PPE and distance and knowing what to do if you've got to get somebody to the emergency department. Any comments there? No, I think that you've hit it on the head, Chuck, where we are a community. We um, do live um, in the same same general areas as others um, for, the, for the most part. And, uh, and so masking, vac- vaccination, uh, doubling down on kind of your procedures for um, ensuring that you don't bring COVID home to your family um, are all things that um, my family's talking about right now. Um, and we are trying to be uh, good bystanders and good community members um, as we move forward with Delta. And I will tell you, Chuck, Delta is no joke. Um, this is some, one thing that we, um, it is much more infectious um, it is something that if you do come in contact with someone that does have COVID, you're much more likely um, to contract it, um, much more so than, than the first strain of the virus that we saw. And so um, I would say um, having good uh, uh, bystander ability through masking, uh, through hand washing, through uh, decreasing your chance of spreading the, the illness, um, but most of all through vaccination. Um, I think is is uh, imperative for all members of our community that are eligible. Prof, is it reasonable to say that because we all will have these variants hitting, that we probably won't all be vaccinated, that we will have to create our own new normal, depending on our community. And we should probably expect that there are going to be surges over the years to come and that we're going to have to become experts on our own threats, vulnerabilities and risks in our own community, but that we can have a really vibrant and great new normal if we take them seriously. Yeah, Chuck, I think this is a great point. I think um, I think the, we need to show humility to this virus. This is something that we haven't seen before, and we need to be really aware of data. Um, we need to look at the data and just say, oh, wow, Delta variant looks way more infectious than previous. Um, I can see that there's that hospitalizations are going up in my community. I can tell that um, uh, a certain percentage of uh, the folks in my community are vaccinated. Here's what I need to do for my family. Um, I definitely think that's the approach that we're taking um, here in San Francisco. I know it's the approach you and your family have been taking, Chuck. And um, I would recommend it to um, following the program steps that you've laid out so clearly um, to every family that's here watching 
um, and even to those who aren't. Um, if you can get vaccinated, that's the number one thing that you can do to help um, protect your own family um, and your community. Um, and uh, if, but there are gonna be folks that aren't vaccinated and the Delta variant is going to come to your community. Um, and it's a matter of uh, making sure that your family and uh, your loved ones are safe. Some people believe that they or have been told that the vaccines contain fetal tissue and for religious reasons, they want to avoid vaccination. Uh, what's the truth? Full stop. The vaccines do not contain fetal tissue, Chuck. This is not an issue. What about the risk for blood clots from the vaccines? The, it's reported to be very rare. However, it's blown up in the press. Yeah, I would say, Chuck, that um, this is one of the safest vaccines that we've uh, rolled out. It's, um, uh, you know, we vaccinate, we have lots of different vaccines. This is one of the, the safer of all that battery of vaccination that uh, most folks have gotten. Uh, blood clots, extremely rare. Um, in my opinion, it's uh, not a reason not to get the vaccine. Your risk of getting COVID and getting sick from COVID, especially with Delta variant, is much, much, much higher than your risk of getting a blood clot with the vaccine. Toph, what about fertility, both for men and women? There's been a lot of misinformation out on the web. Could you just clarify that this is, this, this is just not a risk to worry about? Yeah, Chuck, I'm so happy you brought that up. It's uh, one thing that I'm very proud of our uh, physician group. We had two um, colleagues who were pregnant um, they went on the news um, to get their vaccine while they were pregnant uh, to show people that it's safe. Physicians are getting this vaccine. Um, physicians that are pregnant are getting this vaccine uh, because they want to protect them and their new uh, baby. Um, and it's one, one thing that uh, um, I think is very clear now with the evidence that it is safe to get when you're pregnant. And then when we talk about uh, the worry about future fertility for men and for women, again, there's a lot of misinformation. Absolutely. Um, it was one of the big fears, I think, early on with the vaccine rollup. And, uh, and this, again, has no evidence behind it. Uh, the vaccine should not affect your uh, fertility and you should feel comfortable um, getting the vaccine. Um, getting COVID, getting the Delta variant is much more um, risky uh, for your long-term uh, fertility, in my opinion, than, uh, than getting the vaccine. So, Top, one of the issues that uh, is really critical are breakthrough infections. And people don't realize that even the mild COVID that you might get after you're vaccinated can be a really bad flu. It could be like food poisoning. It can wipe you out for a whole week and also put you at risk for long COVID. Are these fair statements? And, and is this why people that are vaccinated shouldn't say, oh, I'm going to throw away the mask and not worry about things to go back to the way it was before? Yeah, there's two reasons why vaccinated patients should still wear masks. One is that uh, through these breakthrough cases um, and their individual risk of, uh, of getting uh, long COVID or um, just having the acute symptoms of COVID, even if you're vaccinated and your risk of hospitalization and death are much lower, um, getting COVID is no walk in the park, Chuck. Um, and number two is that you don't wanna be the person that transmits COVID to you and to others. Uh, to in your community and to your loved ones. Um, and getting a breakthrough case of COVID when you're vaccinated, you are able to transmit, especially with the Delta variant, which is much more contagious. 
And so as the evidence come, pours in and we see more and more case, breakthrough cases with Delta, um, we're gonna see more uh, vaccinated uh, persons spreading it because they're not taking the proper precautions when they're indoors. Um, and that is, if you're vaccinated, be a good community member and continue to mask while you're indoors uh, for the foreseeable future during this Delta surge. Doc, you've been so helpful. We, we, we really believe CDC is doing the best job it possibly can. And we like to say uh, that they tell us uh, the what and we try to turn that into the how or turn the science into safety. Uh, thank you so much for your, your help there. Um, one of the questions that people have uh, that, uh, and we try to simplify it is to say, if you've been vaccinated, the three questions are, can I get it? Can I spread it? And can I get sick? It's yes, yes, and yes. Is that a fair statement? It is yes, yes, and yes. It's um, way less likely, way less likely, and way less likely. But uh, but you're absolutely right, especially with Delta. Um, it is yes, yes, and yes. One of the things that we're seeing is an amazing number of people that might get their first vaccination shot, but not get their second. And now with Delta, tell us what that enormous risk is of not getting that second shot. Well, it's interesting, Chuck, because if you would have asked me this question about a, a month or two ago, we saw a great, uh, you know, that the first shot gave great protection. Um, but the, the second shot really gives the protection against Delta variant. And Delta variant is becoming the prominent variant in the United States. It's something that is coming to your community if it's not already there. And it's uh, is, so that second shot becomes much more important. Um, it really primes the immune system in the way the shots were designed. Um, and tested. Um, this, the second shot is extremely important for Delta variant, and we can't stress that enough. So if you've uh, gotten complacent, uh, said, I, oh, I got the first one, I'm pretty well protected. Uh, that was true maybe a couple months ago. Um, with Delta variant, um, you're at high risk of getting hospitalized and um, dying of COVID again, if you haven't had the two shots. Um, and more to come, I think, Chuck, and I know your program is going to be right on top of it um, on whether or not we're going to need a booster shot with, uh, with uh, Delta variant too. Um, and I'm uh, looking at that very closely for, for um, my own family um, because you can see how infectious Delta actually is. And so if you haven't had that chance to go get your second shot, um, now's your shot. Now's your chance. Um, you know, I, I would hate to um, say... Um, Stop listening to the to your um, to your program, Chuck. But it's time to go now and uh, make that appointment now to get that second shot if you haven't been able to. Thank you so much, Toff, for a really really important uh, important issues. Toff, are you surprised that we had a spring summer surge of adolescents and young people coming down with COVID? actually one in five going in the ICU and a number of them then on respirators. Are you surprised that this happened? And do you think that it's well publicized? Well, it's not pu well publicized. And um, I can't say that I'm completely surprised because you just have to look at the vaccination numbers and who got the vaccines. Um, vaccines work, Chuck, and uh, especially these vaccines. It's been amazing to see how they withstood the test of uh, this rapid rollout. Um, and uh, you just look at the vaccine numbers and you saw that um, adolescents um, who were eligible and young folks um, weren't getting them. And so, of course, they're at a higher risk. 
And they're also, um, uh, um, you know, having more risky behavior, being in much more close contact, um, not masking when they're indoors. Um, you know, they've been uh, on lockdown for a year and uh, want to see their friends. And I totally get that. Um, and so, but young people have the um, higher risk behavior and uh, are less likely to be vaccinated. And those are the two reasons why we're seeing this. And so, unfortunately, I think it was a, a bit predictable of what was going to happen. So, Toph, one of the pieces of misinformation that has impacted a lot of people is the belief that the vaccines were created almost overnight and there were not years of development of the mRNA viruses. Can you clarify the fact that that much, much work was put into this and that they'd already developed the mechanism and then they used the genetics to be able to, to develop these wonderful vaccines very rapidly? Can you frame that for us? Yeah, Chuck, there was a decade, you know, a decade or more of uh, research that went in with the first SARS uh, kind of uh, scare um, and the first coronavirus scares. And so the MNR, uh, MNRA vaccines um, basically just had to have the right protein genetic code dropped in. Uh, the, uh, the research had already been done. And then came the testing. And you have to remember that um, this wasn't a rush testing they were just able to enroll much more people much more rapidly because of the severity of the pandemic. And so you got to the right number a lot faster because people were more willing to participate and there were more resources put into these trials of, uh, for the vaccine than any other vaccine in history. And that's why you were able to see such a rapid rollout. And it's actually, frankly, quite amazing. And then you look at the post hoc analysis of the safety profile of these vaccines, Chuck, and we've had hundreds of millions of shots in arms and you see such few side effects. I will tell you that getting COVID, the risk of getting COVID with Delta variant being so high and your risk of your um, long COVID symptoms are reasons to get the vaccine now if you've been hesitant uh, because you thought the rollout was too fast. And I can understand being a, a skeptical of this day and age. There's lots of misinformation out there but what I can tell you is that this was a meticulous process done over decades when folks and scientists were ready for the challenge and they rose to it, frankly. Um, and it's been incredible to watch. Top, there's a lot of news about mandates for vaccination and the required that employers and that organizations, now even the federal government in areas like the VA hospitals are requiring it. Uh, isn't this just a natural process in public health? Uh, you've got a master's in public health. We met at Harvard together. Isn't this just a natural phenomenon to require a life-saving preventative measure for public health? It's, it's a fundamental thing. It's nothing new, is it? No, Chuck, this goes back uh, exactly to um, the 1950s when vaccines first started rolling out and they were mandated. Um, you're mandated to have vaccines um, to go to sc uh, public schools. Um, vaccines are a way so that we can survive as a community. Um, and it protects uh, you, your family member, and those around you uh, to have vaccines. And so if we wanna get back to work, if we wanna get back to normal, um, if we want to uh, participate within our communities in the way we were before um, the pandemic, then vaccines need to be required. And they need to be required, especially in healthcare settings. They need to be required, especially in schools. They need to be required in 
especially in places that uh, that people congregate. Um, and so I, I, it's not surprising, and it's uh, it's definitely a, a very uh, well trodden public health measure uh, to require vaccines that are proven to work, especially against something like the Delta variant, uh, which is so contagious. So, Toph, uh, what are your thoughts and what are your message to our Eagle Squadron and the communities that have stepped up to put rescue stations at the beaches? Chuck, I couldn't be more proud of the Eagle Squadron. It's uh, especially Charlie. I, I uh, um, remember meeting him when he was, uh, you know, almost barely able to walk. And look at him now. He's uh, a very accomplished surfer and uh, soon to be Eagle Scout. And this project, um, I think, is going to save lives. Um, and it's something that uh, is going to be indelible to um, your community and uh, to the community that uh, visits the beach. And, uh, and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully it's never needed. But um, it, when it is, it's going to be there and it's going to be really well. Um, you know, I, I can't I can't say enough about the signage and the way it looks and uh, all the stop the bleed kits and the AED and the uh, bag valve mask. It's uh, one of the more advanced stations that I've ever seen. So really, truly congratulations. You guys have done an amazing job um, and thank you for the service to your community. Uh, thank you for your advice as an emergency medicine doctor and someone so committed to rescuing others and care for others. You've been a wonderful champion of the MedTAC program, and we just really appreciate it. Thanks, Chuck. Jamie, as an incoming medical student and someone with an undergraduate degree in science, having uh, had a lot of uh, study in science, uh, what's your message to young people about the seriousness of the Delta variant? So I would say that Delta is extremely serious. Not only are we seeing an increase of people in my age in the ICUs, but we also know that it's much more virulent and it's much more contagious just to the general public. Um, and so unless we want to go back to where we were last January, which is what I know nobody wants, um, we should really be thinking about everybody getting vaccinated as soon as possible, as well as keeping up our safe practices to keep this variant at bay as much as possible. Jamie, uh, we know that the secondary infection rate in homes through our research of over a thousand family transmissions and what's in the literature that people are getting this disease at home. Our essential workers uh, are getting it at home and our secondary infection rate is over 50% even before Delta. What are your thoughts about preventing secondary infection in the home? Well, we know from our research that Breaking family transmission chains is one of the most critical pieces to beating and overcoming this pandemic. And since 50% of infections occur or secondary infections that occur within the home, that actually, that number was taken back with the original coronavirus, which is much less contagious than the current Delta variant. So that 50% is really a lower bound number. And it might be much, much higher for the Delta variant. So especially at home and in your own family transmission chain, it's really, really important to be adhering to safe practices for Delta. Jamie, we know that the viral load in people that have Delta can be, could be a thousand times greater and that the asymptomatic period of two days when someone doesn't even know that they have the infection, may never even develop symptoms, could be a highly contagious period. What's your message to young people who are really uh, in the super spreader group? Know the risks. 
it's really important to realize that asymptomatic spread is a major route of transmission for this disease. So we really need to make sure that you're being safe at all times because you never know when you could be exposed or when you potentially could be exposing people to the Delta variant. And we all want so desperately to keep this under control. Jamie, you uh, have been able to be admitted to medical school based on your academic strength. What could be the impact of having long haul COVID and developing brain fog at your point in your career as you are trying to learn so much to become a good doctor and a good specialist? Well, I definitely don't want brain fog. I definitely don't want long COVID because for me, that could have some major implications on how I practice medicine how I learn medicine and in the long term when I'm caring for patients. Um, if I didn't learn a disease, you know, that could, or, or some disease process or um, the drug that needs to be administered, that could have some serious impact on future people's health too. So I definitely don't want long COVID. Jamie, many thanks for your wonderful contributions to our papers, our videos, and our continuing education program. You've done a great job and we look forward to seeing you blossom in your career at medical school. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Andy, you are the Director of Emergency Management for the University of California in Irvine. We've been using the metaphor that the prior surges have been like a Category 3 hurricane striking the coast, and this delta is now a Category 5. Is that a reasonable approach? And what's your message to frontline law enforcement, first responders, and those that are essential workers? Yeah, Chuck, I think that's a, a really accurate metaphor. You know, it's it may not have made landfall quite yet, but it's it's creeping up on our coast. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges with this resurgence of this this Delta variant is that you know everybody we were really in. I mean, we had the president saying, you know, we we're, we're over this, we're we're moving on, we've gotten rid of mass mandates. You know, we really. Have, were so battle weary with this and we were so you know moving towards uh the 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 new normal and you know coming out of this you know i haven't said in a few few meetings that you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel and then maybe it's not a train this time but turns out uh maybe it was <laughs> um you know that the way this this uh, delta variant is coming up is is just it's it's so scary and it's it 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 requires this total reversal of course that the country was going into, which, you know, it's like turning around an aircraft carrier because so many people were just so out of it, you know, and ready to, ready to move on and get back to, to normal life. So it's, it's been, it's, it's an incredible challenge. Um, I think that the, the biggest, you know, with law enforcement, particularly, you know, that they're still out there in the front lines, they're still the, the, the frontline workers, the first responders, um, you know, in this country. And, you know, they've been moving in that same same way, that same, uh, you know, area that everybody else has been going into, but they've got to be, you know, even more inclined to turn back around, start putting on masks, making sure they're vaccinated. I mean, they, they were a pretty good group of, of people who got vaccinated in the first place. And, you know, they, they, they in general, particularly, I mean, UCIPD, they were very quick to to protect themselves but you know now it's you know we're so weary of of everything that's been going on that it's it's easy to let our guard down so the first responders particularly really have to 
you know, keep their guard up and remember that this thing is out there. You could still get, I mean, these, these, this check the, 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 the news that just came out that, you know, even an asymptomatic vaccinated person can carry this virus around in quantities enough to spread it to other people. And they're the ones that are dealing with these people every day. So, um, you know, law enforcement just really needs to, to buckle down, go back to the safety measures. It's hard to, to revert um, back to those safety measures, but those safety measures were effective. You know, that's the biggest message that it's, yeah, masks, we're sick of them. We're sick of the news of, you know, having the being pushed on with the vaccine, but we, those things were effective. And if we're going to get out of this Delta variant, those are the things we have to revert to. Well, thank you so much, Randy. And also, you are a leader that influences youth. You are not only a director of emergency uh, preparedness, but you're also a scout leader and have great influence over our young. As we look at this continuum of our public safety net, the very first responders are our families, our kids, our teenagers, our college students, our young adults, in addition to our adults, that really are the very first responders and then we have police and we have uh, uh, law we, we have uh, a fire department and we have EMS and then we have our emergency departments and we've had a wonderful program led by our emergency medicine doctors but now as we talk about the message to our youth uh, can you share what your message is to our young people regarding the Delta virus and likely more surges that are on the way? Well, I think it's it's largely the same message, um, you know, just slightly slightly tempered, but it's that you know, reinforcing that the that wearing masks, you know, um, distancing, washing your hands, doing all those things that were, you know, we were we were sort of had been forced on us for the last year, you know, that's those have to continue if we're going to, um, you know, get this get out of this Delta virus. I mean the the. Under, making them understand the science in a way that they can't understand, which is, you know, if we're going to get out of COVID, COVID's never going to go away. We just have to accept that, but we can reduce it. We can, if we, if fewer people get COVID, fewer people will spread it and fewer variants will, will start popping up. I mean, I've heard the Delta variant is being described as just a monster. I mean, it's, it's much more transmissible. It's, it's much easier to get, much more contagious. Um, so we have to take those same measures. But once again, just like we said with law enforcement, enforcing to these kids that these measures, wearing a mask is such a simple thing to do. And it is so effective. It is incredibly effective to stop the spread, not to keep necessarily keeping you from getting, although there is a measure of protection there, but keeping you from spreading it to others if you're carrying it around and don't even know it, which is with this variant, if you're vaccinated, is absolutely possible. Um, you know, make them understand, you know, measures like one in, in, in scouts, having a one, one scout per tent, you know, at, on campouts and, you know, limiting the size of gatherings. You know, we just recently started moving our, our weekly meetings inside because we, you know, things were fine and we were taking our masks off because that was the guidance that we were given. Well, we're going back to, to outside meetings. We're going back to putting masks on. Um, you know, scout leaders need to be especially, um, you know, diligent about that to make that that, you know, have to lead by that example, by putting those masks on and making sure that they require their scouts to do the same thing. And these scouts, if they are eligible, if they are of age, 
go get vaccinated. You know, my son hates shots more than anything. But, you know, when it came time to get vaccinated with this, we said, you know, you need to do this. It's not for you. It, it is obviously you're protecting yourself, but you're also protecting all these other people that if if you cannot, you know, get this this disease, of course, now we're finding that vaccinated people can, in fact, become infected. Maybe they won't get asymptomatic, but they'll carry it in their nose and throat and they can easily spread it to other people. So, you know, while we are protecting ourselves with the vaccine, we have to make sure that the, 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 the truth about it, the science behind it, not the rhetoric, not the politics, but the science and the truth behind it are understood by these kids and that there are very simple things we can do. We just need to keep doing them. Yeah, we're exhausted by COVID. The whole world is exhausted by COVID, but we just have to keep moving through. We have to keep doing what we have to do to keep ourselves and everybody safe. And we just have to keep re-emphasizing that message. And if we do, I think that the, these, these kids will, will make us proud with, you know, this is something they're going to inherit and they're going to have to manage. So we, we need to, you know, accept that and help them with that to the extent that we can. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for all you've done and all you do. And thank you for your collaboration on our uh, now more than thousand family response study. We right. really appreciate it. That's incredible. Thank you, Chuck. And I really appreciate you having me on. David, after hearing the program today of these leaders, what are your thoughts? Well, the first thing that I really want to mention is that it's very comforting and also empowering to have heard from some leaders who are really reputable, some of the, the leading experts in the entire nation. Uh, there's so much misinformation going on with COVID right now that I can really say it's refreshing to, to have some opinions from people that I feel I can really trust. And the information that they provided, I can take back to my friends and family and can actually start to make a contributable difference in this fight. Do you think there's significant misinformation in your age group? Absolutely. I think we're living in an era where objective truth is very hard to come by. And I've had conversations with a lot of my friends where it's impossible to come to any kind of resolution because we're operating off of completely different sets of facts. So to be able to have this and the information that was provided in the seminar will be really helpful in, in having those conversations be more productive. Well, thank you for your contributions and uh, partnering. Oh, thank you so much for having me, doctor. So Jennifer Dingman, uh, we always have you close, the Voice of the Patient close our programs. Uh, we'd love to have your reaction to what you've heard today and give us our closing comments. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Denham. What a great program we had today. I learned so much. I'd like to thank each and every one of our speakers individually for their hard work and all of the wisdom and knowledge that they've given to the audience today. Dr. Bardo Owens, I am so glad that you talked about what you did. I'm very, very concerned with children going back to school with this COVID going around with these new variants. And what you have educated us with today is really, really important. Um, Dr. Fox, I'm very thankful for your presentation with regard to the Delta variant. I learned so much that I didn't know. And, and lastly, Dr. Peabody, thank you so much for putting all of the pieces together and showing us just how important everything is that we've been doing. It really made me feel great to be a part of this wonderful program. I wish to thank all of the other speakers and everyone in the audience. Again, I encourage you to please share 
the recordings of all of these webinars with your friends, family members, neighbors, and colleagues. And um, we'll see you next time, and God bless everyone. Back to you, Dr. Denham. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you for your tireless work in patient safety and quality and all that you've done and continue to do. And that concludes our webinar for today. We'll see you next month.